In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O treasure of your good and bestower of life, come and dwell us and cleanse us every stain and save our souls, O good one. Those of us who read the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, will hopefully have come across the demand from people for Christ to perform a sign or a miracle. Now, if we study the miracles, even though Christ does a miracle, and then straight after that, certain Jews come up and say to him, give us a miracle. So if we are to read the gospel with diligence, that is not just to read it like a little story, but to penetrate into it because from the gospel we receive life, we would have to ask ourselves, why are they asking for a miracle when they just saw one? And not just one, but they saw many. So today, the theme of the talk is exactly that, what you, what you received in your emails, seeking signs and miracles, is it beneficial or is it harmful? And remember, when we read the Gospels, we don't just look at it as being historical. We look at it as being something which is for us today. Whoever says that the Gospels are uh, old-fashioned, that they don't help people, etc., is very, very wrong and very shallow and in danger of losing their souls. Can, we can relate to the Gospels today. And today, whatever we read from the Gospels, with God's help, I will try to relate it to our everyday life. Now, the first example is one where in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Some demons have different uh, characteristics. There are demons which are mute. That means that the person who's possessed by that demon can't speak. So Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, that's another word for Satan, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out the demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So what do we see here? We see three things. One, that the crowd was amazed. The crowds were amazed that this person who was possessed is suddenly freed from the demon. The second thing, some of the crowds said that Christ is possessed himself. And that's because he's possessed that he takes out the demon from the possessed person. And the third thing we see that others, maybe even the same or others, doesn't matter, it's crossover. Others of the crowd wanted a sign from heaven after they just saw that great miracle. That's the, that's the question. Why are they demanding a sign from heaven when they just saw one? So that's where we're going to be heading today. And is it bad to ask for a sign or for a miracle after you just saw one? So the Holy Gospel says that the Pharisees were not satisfied with the miracle performed by our Lord, frequently demanded from him instead another miracle. They wanted a sign from heaven. An example of this is the miracle of the multiplication of the seven loaves. And I'm going to read that 
It's a little, it's a few lines, but it's good for us to get an idea because we'll be referring to that. It says that in those days, another large crowd gathered. So the evangelist Mark is actually saying, by saying another large crowd, means that there wasn't just that, but there were a lot of large crowds gathering. People were drawn to Christ for a number of reasons. Others for miracles, others for his word, others for curiosity, others to test him, others were jealous. There's a number of reasons. And if we look at that today, it's the same thing today that people come to church. People come to church for various reasons. Some to save their marriage and only to save their marriage. Others because their children are on drugs or something like that. Others because their husband's an alcoholic or others this and others that. Others for curiosity, others for social reasons, because they're lonely. Others because it's Russian or Serbian or Greek. But these are not the reasons why we come to church. The reason why we come to church is because we are seeking the salvation of our soul. But anyway, in this case, some of these people were coming for different reasons. So another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. In other words, he's saying, I feel sorry for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Firstly, the three days that they stayed with him for three days, showing, for we, we would hope for the majority of them, that they were attracted by his word. Others were there for other reasons. Three days. And after a while, they had no food. So they actually... Be, they, he, and when we say that Christ felt sorry for them, we have to understand that Christ, being God, so we understand that God feels sorry for people in their needs. So some people have this picture of God as a, as a harsh person, as a person in heaven who's always trying to catch us out that we're doing sins and wants to put us in hell. But few have an image of God as compassionate, as loving. But then we have the other group who have God as only love, only compassionate, but not righteous judge. They don't want to talk about God as being a judge at the end of time when he will come again to judge the, to judge the living and the dead, which is mostly a lot of the Protestants now. And these new super churches that they've got in America and these born-again places like um, Hillsong and things like that. I watched a documentary a few weeks ago exactly on that about these super churches in America. These are churches which are the size of like a David Jones or something like a really big store. And I watched it and it shows a lot of people being attracted to these places. Thousands of, not like the Orthodox churches, say we might get... A few people, but I'm talking about thousands and thousands and even young and teenagers and etc. And I watched, watched, watched in wonderment of what was the attraction there. And there was a person there who was uh, some type of university fellow who was analysing this, this movement. And he said that... In these churches, he didn't say it as a negative thing, he saw, he saw it as a positive thing. In these super churches, they do not mention hell, demons, devil. They don't mention judgment. 
So therefore, these churches are really good, and if you've got the problem, I advise you that's the church to go to, is it's really good for people who are proud, people who cannot be told anything. But the Orthodox Church is a church of obedience, a church which does point out to people their sins. And that's why a lot of people don't like it. When we read about the, in the Old Testament the prophets, we saw that the prophets, yes, they did miracles, but they also were telling the people what their faults were. And it was over that that the people killed them. Some of them were ripped apart. Some of them were sawn in half. So they were killed for the very reason that they were telling the people their faults, warning them, this is not right, that's not correct. Now, when we read the lives of saints, we have saints, yes, who are full of love. But also we see a characteristic of the saints, which is that when, when they have to, they will tell the people what is wrong. St. John Chrysostom didn't just speak about God's love. But he also spoke about God's judgment. He also said which sins are wrong. He was telling the people in those times, why are you going to the theatres? Or why are you going to the, um, where they do all these chariot races and all these type of events they used to have? He was putting the Christians down for that. And at the end, the reason why he was persecuted was because he, put, he um, condemned in an indirect way the empress because she made a statue of herself for some stupidity, and he said some things there, and therefore the empress got upset and exiled him once and called him back, then exiled him again, etc. It was because he spoke up. If we have the silly way of thinking, we can say, well, St John Chrysostom was helping so many thousands of people, so many. Why didn't he just keep his mouth shut? Just keep his mouth shut. And then he could have continued to speak up. Saint Cosmas Oetolos, the Greek saint, uh, he lived during the time of the Turks and he condemned a, a, a certain uh, practices that were happening in his time. And at the end, if I, if I remember right, I think he was uh, against the Christians of going to the... or doing... Um, shopping and things like that and selling on Sunday because the Muslims would have their day off on Friday, the Jews would have their day off on Saturday and then the Christians would do some business on Sunday. And St. Cosmas says, no, 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 that upset the Jews at that time. So somehow they slandered him to the Muslims and after that they killed him. He should have shut his mouth too, it seems, if we have the, that mentality that, uh, that the saints don't speak up. So... If any of us have a proud spirit, if any of us don't like to be told uh, by our saints throughout the writings, through the priests preaching, through the gospels, in confession, etc., if people don't like to be told their faults, then the Orthodox Church is not the place. Then you go to these other churches where, you don't, where, where you're not told anything. But then we have to look at history and say, well, these new churches, are they... In any way do they resemble the ancient churches? And we see they don't. They don't resemble them in any way. So here we see God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, actually having compassion for these people. 
that they've already been with me for three days, nothing to eat. And if I send them hungry away, they will faint on the way. He was so concerned that they will even faint on the way. Because some of them have come a long distance, so it will take them a while to get back home. Now this here, I've, I've mentioned before, and I want to emphasise, there are people in the Orthodox Church who believe that they are spirit only, that they don't have a body. So they say things like, it doesn't matter about food, it doesn't matter about sleep, it doesn't matter about rest, it doesn't matter. So when they see someone say, for example, be careful how much fasting you do, make sure you sleep, be careful of this, be careful of that, they say, oh no, 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 we, if, if we do God's will, then we'll be protected. Nothing will happen to us. But here we see God himself being concerned about them. He didn't say, he didn't say to the disciples, who came to him and said, oh, they're hungry. Or he, he didn't say to them, don't worry, they're listening to the word of God. They're listening to my word. They will be filled with my word and they won't need to eat. It doesn't matter. And they'll fly home with no problem. But that's not what we see. So these wrong views that exist today, in a way it's a heresy because there were people who believed that the body... They didn't care about their body, that the body had no needs, that the body was evil, something of, those, of, the, of, the, of their sort. And they only thought about the spiritual, about praying. And be careful of that because that will lead into deception and destruction. And here we see Christ did not have that. He was concerned. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Christ said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the large crowd. So, I think that's self-explanatory. So they had a few small fish as well. Having blessed them, he told the disciples to distribute them as well. The people ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. Christ wanted to make sure that they were satisfied. When it's time to fast, we fast. But when it's time to eat, we eat. See, people think that we have to be constantly hungry. And they even make their children do extensive fasts so that at the end of the day, their children get sick without realising you have to have discernment. And here we see that Christ said, we, that, he, that well, in the Bible we hear, that they, that they ate and were satisfied. Not stuffed, satisfied. It's a bit of a different thing. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces which were left over of, the, of that, from, from the multiplication of... And about 4,000 men were present, and in those days they would only use the numbers of men but so therefore, in reality, if it was 4,000 men, women usually come to gatherings that are more. So I think I've read in the past that there would have been more women and there would have been children as well. So if it was 4,000 men, there might have been 10, 15,000 people there. Uh, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples. Now that's Mark 8, 1, 10. So, interesting one, that it says that they're in the wilderness, that they're in the middle of nowhere. Which, which we're going to see a similarity to that because the same thing happened to the Jews when they left Egypt and they were in the wilderness as well, in the desert, and they had no food as well. But that's another a miracle there. We'll come to that later. And the other thing was that there was 
so much left over of this multiplication of this food, of, of the bread and the fish, that they, that, that they took up seven baskets. And the Holy Fathers say they wanted to make sure that the miracle stayed in the minds of the disciples so that they had to carry these baskets. They had to really, they were heavy baskets, one can say, they had to carry them so it can be really distinct. This was truly a miracle because we're carrying away seven baskets full of fish and, and bread when there was only seven loaves in the first place. Then the Pharisees came. Now we come to the part, which is the theme of the talk. Then the Pharisees came and began to dispute with Jesus. So after this miracle, the Pharisees came. The Pharisees were a group of people who believed they were following the law of Moses to the letter. Their fasts, their prayers, etc. And we know that Christ, if he spoke harsh against any group of people, it was them. If you read the Bible, he actually calls them names. Whitewashed um, tombs, you're empty, you look beautiful from the outside, like a tomb looks beautiful, but inside the tomb are full of rotten, filthy bones. That's the same as you. From the outside, he says, you, look, you may look like you're spiritual or holy or whatever, but inside you, you're full of evil. These are the type of words that Christ used. Those super churches must omit that. I think they have to. They must have a lot of their sections of the gospel missing. But then again, do they really read much gospel? Most of the time, they're playing rock music. So, it's there's no time to actually read the gospel. So, what are they? Are they Christians or semi pagans? What what are they? You don't. It's very hard to even know what they are. And they don't even have crosses in their churches. Because they say that they don't want to be, they don't want it to look like the the, the old-fashioned churches with crosses. So they they omit the crosses as well. So they began to dispute with Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply in his spirit. So he actually let out a sigh, like a frustration, uh, a pain, and he says to them, "Why does this generation?" Seek a sign. Why do these people in these times ask for a sign? I will tell you the truth. No sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them. I, later on, as the talk goes on, God willing, we will be explaining why he sighed. And we'll be explaining the part about that he left them, which are very important. And they will help us as well. But it's, it's enough to know at this stage... Well, let's see what St. Ignatius says. St. Ignatius, which is where I got some of this information from, from, from his book, Signs and Miracles, he says that the miraculous multiplication of the loaves in the hands of the Savior was not enough for them. It was not enough. This was done quietly. This was done with humility, in which whatever God, the, the God-man, in other words, whatever Christ did, it was all done with humility. But the people needed a spectacle. They needed something which produced an effect. Now that is extremely important. This is one of the. This is where we're getting close to the reason. For them, the multiplication of the bread was nothing for them and the fish. It was they wanted something spectacular. And he also says 
They asked for a sign from heaven, such as making the sun or the moon stand still, or to send down a lightning bolt, or to change the winds. Well, how can the sun or the moon stand still? So one would say, are they asking for something which is illogical? Why would they be asking for the sun and the moon to stand still? And why would a lightning bolt be so special compared to the feeding of the 4,000 people? Or to change the winds? It sounds like what they're talking about is that they wanted to see, or San Ignatius goes on, he says, they needed the skies to be covered by dense clouds. They wanted to, they wanted to see the skies covered with thick clouds. They wanted thunder to roll. They wanted lightning to dazzle. And they wanted the loaves of bread to fall from heaven and for the sun and the moon to stand still. What's happening here is that they are actually, the Jews are referring to the Old Testament where all those things happened. The sun stood still, the moon stood still, loaves from, the, from bread fell from heaven, there was lightning, etc., which I'm going to go through all them now. St. Kiru of Alexandria says, Christ did not perform his miracles in order for people to be amazed. He didn't want that. And that's important because later on we're going to see who will be doing miracles, which will be amazing. But not Christ. Did not want to do things which made people go, oh, and be like stimulate their eyes and things like that. Nor did he want them to regard him as famous. Which is a characteristic of the saints. The saints didn't want to be famous. And when they did miracles, they did it sometimes hidden. Like a lot of times they was hidden. There was a very rare for a saint to do something that was spectacular. Because the saints have Christ's spirit in them. So just like Christ was humble, the saints have the spirit of God. So they're doing the same. But let's go through the Old Testament, just a few parts, because when we read these things, because then Christ refers to them, to these things himself, we have to know well, what does it mean? Now, when the Hebrews had used up their bread after they had, from what they'd taken from Egypt. So as you know, the Jews were slaves under the time of the pharaohs in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses, through miracles, took them out of Egypt. When they had left, they, they took some bread for their journey, but it ran out. So the Lord sent them bread from heaven. It looked like white crumbs or pieces of hail and had a taste of bread with honey. This bread was called manna. In Greek, I think it's manna. But in, it's manna in English because when the Hebrews saw it for the first time, they said in their language, they said manna, which means, what is this? Because they were there and they noticed all these, this falling from the sky. And hence what the Jews were referring to a sign from heaven. So they saw this falling from the sky, because they're obsessed with the sky, and uh, then the, the, manna, the manna covered the earth in the morning around the camp. So when the Jews woke up, came out of their tents, because they were in the desert, they noticed all this like, looked like hail, but it was actually sweet bread. And that, and that kept on occurring for 40 years, because as they went through the desert until they went to the promised land, God always supplied them with this food because how else would they have found food in the desert 
So the Pharisees are referring to that. Then we go, we go to the next one. The Ten Commandments, what happened? On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. Hence what they're referring to. See, when Moses was going to go up to get the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, there was thick cloud, there was lightning. So as you notice, all these are in the sky. We mentioned a lot of this last month too. And a very loud trumpet blast was heard coming from the sky. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The, the, like, so it was like this smoke came down on the mountain and it looked like fire, and this is the way that God made himself appear in those times. God also made himself appear in the form of a dove. Oh, on Pentecost, where all the apostles had a tongue of fire on top of them. So that's the way that God made himself manifest in those times. The smoke ascended like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, so there was even an earthquake. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So that is what St. Ignatius is referring to when he says that the Jews wanted lightning, dense cloud, something spectacular because that's what happened in the Old Testament at the time when, the, when Moses received the Ten Commandments and the same with the bread, the manna when that was as well from the sky, it was spectacular, etc. The next one, the moon and the sun to stand still that might sound strange for some but let's look um, a great battle took place between the Israelites and the people of the land of Canaan. The Israelites defeated their enemy and put them to, to, um, to flight. So this is the Jews still. And I think this is to do with Joshua, who I think was the one who took over from Moses. So anyway, they had an enemy to defeat, and the enemy were these people from, from the land of Canaan. Anyway, so what happened was that they uh, fought them, the Jews fought them and beat them, and they started to run away. And while they were running away, God rained down stones from, the, from heaven on those who were fleeing, so that more perished from the stones than from the swords of the Israelites. Here we want to speak about, one, that stones came down from heaven. Again, from the sky, spectacular. This is what's fixed in the, in the, in the Jews' head, these type of things. So... So they were being killed. The day was coming to an end, but the Israelites had not yet killed all of them. And Joshua wanted them all to be dead so that they don't come back and attack them, whatever reason. Joshua then prayed to God and cried aloud before the people, sun, stand still, and moon, do not move. He wanted the sun to stop, not to come down and go dark, he wanted to defeat the enemy while it was still day. And the sun did stand still and night did not come until the Israelites had defeated their enemies. So that is what St. Ignatius branching of the, the Russian saint who wrote this book on signs and miracles, this is what he's referring to. That's what they wanted. All these spectacular things, suns and moons and lightning and dense clouds and things like that. Now... Just this point, um, which I found in this book, The Law of God, 
which I will re I I will um, strongly recommend. This book is really good because it's got all the Old Testament stories, etc., and the New Testament and the, about the church. This is published by um, Jordanville, Holy Trinity Monastery, Jordanville, and I think this is a very good book, and I recommend it. Now, in this book, after the section on Joshua and the Son, which I'd got from there, he makes some notes. This author, and he says that astronomers made some mathematical calculations and they verified that 24 hours have somehow been added to world history. Like there is this extra 24 hours which they cannot work out. Actually, um, he says there that 23 hours and 20 minutes were added in the time of Prophet Joshua so the sun didn't move for 23 hours and 20 minutes. And in the time of Prophet Isaiah, there was some other miracle of the sundial, which I didn't go into detail, but that also uh, stopped for 40 minutes. So 20, 20, 23 hours and 20 plus 40 minutes is the 24 hours, which astronomers say is unaccounted for in their calculations. Now, I'm not going to go into details because, I mean, I know there's some priests around and try and prove all these things day in and day out and, I'm, and for people that don't believe. But you see, I'm not assuming that you don't believe. I assume you believe. So therefore, for believers, it's not difficult to think that the sun or the moon can stand still if God wants. As for the others, just like Noah's Ark, they found it and it was exactly the measurements of the Old Testament with all the little runes, etc. But does that change atheists? Maybe some, but most of them, they don't change whatever they see. Yes, so we've gone through the Ten Commandments, Joshua and the sun and the moon, and we've gone through the other one, which was the manna. So now that's given us a good background as to what this is all about, of what the Jews wanted. So the Pharisees' demand for a sign came from a strange understanding of miracles and signs. They had a warped idea of what is miracles, obviously. This demand was repeated more than once by the Pharisees, but also from others as well. Now I'm going to give you another example. This time, it's the five loaves and the two fish. There was two examples of the multiplication of the bread. One was seven loaves with 4,000 people and seven baskets left over. This one is five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people, 12 baskets left over. I'm not going to go through the, the gospel reading of that. I'm going to come in and say here. The desire for a sign from heaven was sometimes expressed by the people also, not just by the Pharisees. This, it was like a contagious disease that they had. This happened after the miraculous multiplication of multiplying of the five loaves and the two fish and the feed in the multitude. Again, it was 5,000 men apart from women and children. So we can assume that there were thousands and thousands of people present at this miracle as well. So we, I'm not going to read the, the actual miracle, but I'm going to come in at a certain point. It says, And the people saw the miraculous sign, which is the multiplication, that Jesus did, and they began to say, they were amazed, and this, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They were enthusiastic now of what they saw, and now they're saying, oh, he's a prophet. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, they was, as I said, they were so moved by this miracle of the bread that they wanted to make him king, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea where they got into a boat 
and they set across the sea for Kapunaum. So they were here, let's just say they were in one place, there's the sea, and they got into a boat, the disciples, not, not Christ, and they passed over to the other side of the sea of Galilee, which is Kapunaum, the city, or town, whatever it is. So that's where they were. And um, by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. So Sorry, they haven't gone yet. They were on their way, and it was dark. When they had rowed three or four miles away from where the multiplication of the bread took place, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. What were they afraid of? They thought he might have been a phantom, some type of apparition, something demonic. They were shocked seeing this person walking on the water. Then they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were going. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore realised that there was no other boat. So the other crowd that stayed where the, where the miracle took place, they saw there was no other boat and they knew that the disciples got into their boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So they knew that Christ must have been still there with them at the place where the miracle took place. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. I assume, from what I think what happened was, that these people found out about the miracle and all of a sudden they started to come in other boats to the place there so they can see the miracle, partake of the miracle, whatever reason they came. Once the people realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples was there, they got into the boats and went to Kapanaum in search of Jesus. So they went to the other side. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. So they were shocked that he was on the other side, knowing that there was no other boat. Uh, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. It's kind of... He's kind of reprimanding them. Do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which is the Son of Man will give you, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So he says, Why why are you looking for the food? You're only looking for the food to feed your stomachs. Spiritual. The, the miracle occurred, it has a spiritual significance, but they were just interested in the food. Like Orthodox Christians today, they're not interested in the spiritual. Like you often hear priests will say to you that, and that happens to me too, people come, they go, oh, my, my child is sick or that's it, but nothing spiritual, just make them better or help me. Help my marriage, help my children, help me get a job, help this, help that. And a lot of times they ask for some prayers and sometimes even the miracles occur and they get what they want. Does it, but does that bring them to the church properly? No. That's the same as them. That's all they're interested in, food. And um, they asked him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Making out, they're making a spiritual question. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. That's the work of God, to believe in him who he sent, to believe in Christ, the Son of God, who was sent by God, even though he is God. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then 
will you perform that we may see it and believe you? So it's like we're in a psychiatric hospital here and we see that um, he just did a miracle and now they're saying, what are you going to do to show us that you are from God? What are you going to do to prove that to us? And then they say, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now the Jews are referring to the Old Testament where the bread fell. It's like they're saying, yes, you multiplied the bread, but that wasn't as spectacular as the bread falling from heaven. See, this is their warped way of thinking. Now, Blessed Theophilact comments on this gospel and he says, or part of it I'm going to read, Behold the gluttonous craving for food. He calls them gluttons. In other words, just interested in food. Behold the gluttonous craving for food. When Jesus performed 10,000 miracles greater than this one, greater than the multiplication of the bread, when uh, the people did not marvel. Now, because he gave them food, they cry, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. See the difference? So he did other miracles. He made a blind man well. He made a possessed person well. But that's made them well. But in this miracle, they got the benefit. And all of a sudden now, oh, he's a prophet. No longer do they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Like before they say, oh, look, he did a miracle on Saturday. He's not from God. But he was always you know, always looking for faults. But now that I mention that anymore, but now they're saying, oh, he's a prophet. That's what St. Theophilac is saying of Bulgaria. He's one of the interpreters of the gospel. We don't read the gospel and, and in, try and interpret it ourselves because our minds are darkened and we've got passions, we've got ego. So what we do is we look to the saints who are pure, who have the grace of God, who interpret the gospels, and we see that St. Theophilact in Bulgaria, it will be his interpretation will be similar to St. Nikolai in Serbia, St. Tikhon of Zedonsk, as they say in Russia, who is the Russian John Chrysostom. There, everywhere, the Greeks, they all, because, they, because the God's, God's spirit is the same, they all interpret the Gospels basically the same because it's the spirit of God interpreting them. We follow the Father's interpretations, not Protestant interpretation. And what I mean by Protestant, I don't mean Protestants outside the church. I'm talking about Orthodox Christians who act as Protestants. Orthodox Christians who have the mind of Protestants, where they read the gospel and interpret it in the way that they want. That is not the way Orthodox Christians should be. Orthodox Christians do not privately interpret the Bible, etc. So, that's why we have, that's why I went and got all these. I'm, 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 there's no way I'm going to sit down and try and interpret that because I make mistakes. Let's look at the fathers. So, St. Theophilact says, um, before they saw miracles greater than this with the bread, but they didn't marvel and they didn't actually say, they were saying faults about him. Now they're saying, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. No longer do they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. No longer do they defend the law, saying that he breaks the law. For the sake of bread, they honour him so highly as to proclaim him a prophet and make him their king. 
See what a bit of bread does? See what a bit of material does, what a bit of money does? I think many of us could sell our souls for some money, as many do. But the Lord flees from them, teaching us to despise worldly honours, firstly. He, Christ is, doesn't want to be proclaimed king. Then he goes away. See? And that's what the saints used to do. And if some saints accidentally, or let's just say they did a miracle and people started to praise them, what they used to do is during the night they used to escape and go somewhere else where no one knew them because they didn't want to have the temptation of being praised and falling into pride. But here, of course, Christ he doesn't have to go because he's God and he never falls into pride. But he's doing that for us as an example. But we see all these people who do these charismatics and miracle workers, in whether they're in India or Africa, etc., these prophets and whatever else, gurus, etc. When they do miracles and people are saying, wow, look at those miracles, they love it. They never go away. They want people to look up to them. A bit of a difference there. Also, I say, sorry, the difference is like north and south. Is there any distance between north and south or east and west? It's just endless. That's the same as that. That example of people seeking people to um, glorify them is completely different to the saints who didn't like to be glorified and would often run away. That's why we have an example of... uh, um, 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 He was a bishop, and I think he was a miracle worker, and he left... And he went to a monastery in Palestine, to St. Sava's monastery, and he presented himself as a monk. As a monk. He was a bishop, but. And um, he was there cleaning toilets, washing up, cooking, and things like that, like a simple monk. And the, um, the fathers of St. Sava's monastery were so amazed that they wanted to ordain him to a priest. So they said, you know, come here, Father, we're gonna, we want you to become a priest. And that's when he said, I can't be ordained because I'm already a bishop. But even though he was a bishop, that he was so humble that he was willing to live there as a simple monk so as not to be praised. Now, St. Theophilact continues on. On the following day, the people looked for him. They knew that the disciples had left in the only boat present and that the Lord had not entered it with them. As you notice, as I was reading the, the gospel account, I was saying about they thought that he was gone and I was, I was giving some explanations and you might think, oh, well, you're explaining. Yeah, I was, but I was explaining because I remembered what I read in St. Theophilact. I wasn't doing it for myself. So here it is. That's where I got it from. On the following day, they looked for him. They knew that the disciples had left in the only boat present and that the Lord had not entered it with them. Then they began to suspect the miracle that Christ had walked across the sea to the other side. So they started to say, no, this is what must have happened. For him to be on the other side and he didn't get into the boat, he walked on water. And what did they do? They dismissed the miracle the walking on the water, because they only want—they only want to enjoy another meal like that of the day before. 
Therefore, the Lord reproaches them and by saying, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, why he's saying you're not following me because you saw miraculous signs, that's important because Christ is saying what? You should be following me because you saw the miracle. The miracle shows that I'm God. You should be moved by that miracle and you should be coming to me because you witnessed that miracle and you should be coming to me to get what the words of salvation. But they weren't interested in that. So they saw the sign, because that's why Christ did miracles as well, to bring people to himself and to open the door for them to get the word of God to, so that the word of God can, can actually take root in them. That's why he says... Um, not because you saw the miraculous signs. So it's, it's acceptable that Christ wants people to be moved by the miracles as long as that brings them to him as God. But they weren't interested. They wanted to come to him as a person who gives food. That's why he says you've come in because you ate the loaves and were filled and now you want more of the loaves. You should devote yourselves to the life of the spirit not to satisfying the demands of the stomach. Saint Theophilact is saying. He's saying that that's what Christ is trying to say. Look at the spiritual. Come to me for the spiritual, not for your gut, not for your stomach. He does, he does so to curb their preoccupation with food. He's trying to say to them, Don't, you know, stop this, this obsession with the food and redirect them to seek after spiritual things in a sober, balanced manner. So I, I, I love the interpretation, the way the saint says. He says that he's trying to bring them away from this gluttony, from this obsession with the food, to bring them to the spiritual things. And he says here... He's trying to bring him to spiritual things in a sober, balanced manner, not as crazy people, not as, um, oh, wow, and, and all enthusiasm in, the, in a silly way, but sober. Sober means when you're not drunk. So people can be also drunk on pride and, and craziness. So the Jews asked to learn the work of God, not in order to do it, but to have another chance to be fed. Again, that, as I said before, they go, oh, what's the work of God? But that's, they're interested in the food. Behold, the ingratitude of the senseless Jews. How ungrateful they are. They were. There they ask for yet another sign after witnessing so many, St. Theophilac says, and of such greatness, especially the miracle of the loaves by which they had just been satisfied. These gluttons are in fact asking Christ to repeat this miracle and fill their bellies again. That is... An excellent interpretation, obviously, because the saints wrote it, but it also gives us a little bit of understanding of what's going on. Show us a sign, show us a sign. There's all confusion. Some want to see a sign from heaven. Others want to fill their stomachs. There's, as I said, there's all different reasons why people um, come. And when they say, in this case, they wanted to see a sign, this wasn't, these weren't the Pharisees, these were the people, they wanted to see a sign to fill their stomachs, which was another, another miracle of the bread. While the Pharisees wanted to see a sign from heaven, 
like those of the Old Testament. Now we go to another example, which was during the time of Christ's crucifixion, where the chief priests and the elders, another group of people, the demand for a sign from Christ by the chief priests and the, and the scribes, the scribes were the teachers of the law, and the elders was characterised by the same spirit. And it says here in Matthew, in the same way the chief priests, the, the scribes and the elders mocked him and they said he saved others but he cannot save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Firstly, they acknowledged that he did miracles because they said he saved others. They acknowledged that. But then they say, show us a sign. If you are from God, then come down from the cross. Again, the same, the same madness. Another one, in Apostle Luke says, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered and kind of mocked him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ the chosen of God. In other words, if he's the Messiah, then let him come down from the cross. Even though he says, he says here, um, he saved others, the same as the other one. St. Ignatius says, they acknowledged the miracles performed by the man-loving Lord as true miracles, because they said he saved others, so they're true, and yet they disdained and mocked them. They just, what's the word? They just rejected them as if they're nothing. They, they looked at them as unimportant and of no spiritual value and instead demanding a miracle from their own heads, from their own invention. And Saint Ignatius says, if Christ was to have come down from the cross, there would have been no salvation for mankind. When I read that, which was in the Signs and Miracles book, I got a bit, a bit confused what it meant by that, but then I found it in Blessed Theophilac where he says, it was the devil saying through their mouths, come down from the cross. Because these people were, because of their sins, because of their apostasy from God, because of their pride and their evil, they began to become like organs of the demon, like receptacles, like, they were, like the demons were talking through them. So the demons were inspiring them and saying to Christ, come down from the cross. Why? This is what St. Theophilus says, he feared, the devil feared the good that might come through the cross, the devil wanted to prevent it by any possible means. The devil was afraid, not knowing fully this, what the crucifixion was about, because he's stupid, but he thought something might come out of this. And of course he was correct. What came out of, the, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the salvation of the world. And he feared that. So he was pushing the priests and the elders to say, come down from the cross. Now we go to another um, example. Herod. This is number five. So we've seen people and we saw um, uh, Pharisees and the chief priests and all these different things. Now we come to Herod. Herod wasn't even a Jew. And I'll read what it says. It said, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Christ answered nothing. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. This is now coming towards the end. This is where Pilate sent Christ to Herod. 
because Herod was the ruler of Galilee. When Pilate, who was the ruler of Jerusalem, found out that Herod was in Jerusalem at the time visiting, he said, well, I'm not going to deal with this matter. This man's a Galilean. I will send him to Herod and he can handle it. So he sends him to Herod, tied up, as we know, from our icons and things. And that's it. So now I'm going to read what St. Theophilac says to understand just those six lines that I read from the Gospel. And yet St. Theophilac writes so many wonderful, great things where we're not looking at it as just something that happened in the past, but let's look how it can help us. Herod, the ruler of Galilee, was glad for this, but not because he intended to gain something beneficial for his soul. That's a very important thing from seeing Jesus. Instead, he entertained a foolish desire to see this strange man, that he thought, and to hear what he had to say. For Herod suffered from a passion for novelty, distraction, entertainment. He suffered from that passion. Oh, but that's Herod. We don't suffer from that passion, do we? No. The TV's not a novelty, and music's not a novelty, and fashion's not a novelty, and video games aren't a novelty, and, and internet's not a novelty. No, that's not novelty. Now, only Herod's the beast. See, when we read, when we go to the... Um, to Great Friday or Great Thursday, we read the 12 Gospel readings and people hear, if they can understand if they've got the book in English or if they understand their own language, um, we hear that what the Jews did to Christ. But the, oh, sorry, not what the Jews did or what the pagans did, in this case Herod. And people say, oh, Herod was such a horrible man, look what he did. But the point here, what St. Theophilact is trying to say, which, is, which I think is, comes now, he said, he heard much about Jesus and supposed him to be a clever conjurer. In other words, a magician. Do not many of us, St. Theophilac says, suffer the same passion for novelty today. And St. Theophilac, if I remember, I think he lived in the 12th century. I hope that's right. I bet many hundreds of years ago. Imagine today if St. Theophilac lived today with all the distractions. So we should ask ourselves, as we're listening to this talk, myself and all of you people should ask yourselves, and those who will listen to the talk on the tapes, on the CDs, are we Herods? Are we also obsessed with novelties, distractions, entertainment? And are we also... Uh, similar to Herod in that we're not really interested in spiritual, but we're interested in other things. We come to church, so we can say Herod went in front of Christ and says, oh, I want to see a miracle. I want to hear what you've got to say. But St. Theophilac says he had no interest at all for his soul. And I say to you, it's myself now, I say to you that many of us come to church without an interest in our souls, in what's beneficial for our souls. And that is a problem. Herod desired to see for himself some miracle done by Jesus, not in order to believe, but only to feast his eyes, just as we watch tricksters in theatres, 
swallow illusionary serpents like in those days and swords and we are delighted and amazed. And we hear people say, oh, what? Did you see on TV they got some magicians that did some really fantastic tricks? Herod thought that Jesus was little more than one of these entertainers, one of these performers. That's how Herod looked at Christ. He had nothing in his soul for the salvation of himself. Nothing. Nothing spiritual. Herod questioned him with many words, but insincerely and with no serious intent, mocking him all the time. That's very important that Herod asked questions. And who are you? And what do you? What do you believe? What this, this, that? But he wasn't interested in the truth. He was, and he was making fun of Christ while he was asking the questions. Therefore, Jesus answered him nothing. For he who made all things by his word knew when to answer. Christ, being the creator of heaven and earth, knew as God when to answer. For some he answered, for some he didn't answer. And what does that tell us? That tells us that all because someone comes up and talks and says, oh, what does this mean? Or are you, are you religious? Can you tell me about what this says in the gospel? He, he, he. And they're laughing or making fun or looking at the other guy and laughing. And some people are dodos and they actually start to speak to the person. I actually spoke to a person a while ago who said to me that, at work, that, he's, that he said that he's known at work for being religious and therefore people come to him for religious debates. And I said to him, well, why are you doing that? He goes, oh, because they're asking me. I go, so what? Herod asked too, but Christ didn't answer. I said, why, why are you doing that for? He goes, oh, because... I said, but that's from your pride. That's from your pride that you're doing that. And we see the examples here that, and it's very important to note, we don't try to help someone who's mocking and is not interested. And if we do try to do that, it's like we're obsessed because we want to hear the sound of our voice and we want to go and yap, 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 yap and try to help the world. And I remember I told you this example, which I'll repeat because I thought it was a very, very a uh, fearful example that once I had a person, orthodox person, who came to the monastery where we are, who came to fix some, it was like a, a technician of some description, a tradesman. And he said to me, uh, let's have a debate, exactly like that guy was talking about. Let's have a debate. And I said, no, I don't debate. And he goes, oh, you're scared? Whatever you want, you can say, I'm not going to debate. He goes, no, let's talk about uh, the, the religion. I really feel like having a debate. I said, well, that's bad luck because I don't feel like it. I'm not going to have the debate. And he goes, oh, but Father so-and-so from the whatever Orthodox Church, he debates with me. I said, well, after you finish my job, you go and do, you go, de <laughs> you go debate with him. I'm not debating. And he was a bit shocked by that. So he continued his work. And, and then maybe a couple of years later, because he came, he used to come here and there. A couple of years later, he asked the question, but I felt this time that he was sincere. I felt he was sincere. 
So I began to speak to him about matters of faith. Before that, I would talk to him about everything and anything, as long as it wasn't bad, except for about the church or religion. Nothing. I would talk to him. And this guy was obsessed with old shows. He was obsessed with Gilligan's Islands and Bewitched and Brady Bunches and all this type of stuff. So he would talk about that. I say, oh, yes, so oh, yeah, so Marsha was a drug addict, was she? Oh, it's interesting. So I'll just go on and listen to what he's got to say, and I would speak about that. But you might say, oh, but you're a priest. How can you speak about the Brady Bunch? Well, I used to watch it, so I'll say a few things when I was younger. And he was going on about Gilligan's Island, how they got off the island, and this, this guy was just a... So I'm going to now talk to this guy who probably thinks in his, in his dreams that he's Gilligan and speak to him about spiritual things. doesn't work. But this time he was interested. I felt that he was interested. So I started to speak to him. And he, he was listening. He, he was um, connected, one can say. Anyway, and then the, when he came a few days later, he goes, you know what? Those things that you've been telling me, he goes, they're starting to affect me. I go, oh, really? He goes, and I don't like that. I go, what, 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 what do you mean? He goes, I don't like it. I'm actually starting to believe what you're saying. I go, okay, so that was it. So he went back to his blasphemous mode. He went back to his unbelief. In other words, God's grace was trying to bring him and he actually said, and this is not even to laugh at, he actually said that he doesn't want it. He doesn't want to come close to faith in Christ, what he felt. Okay, so that's why we've got to be careful. More on that as we go on. So Christ said nothing. What type of answer should the Lord have given to this man who was not asking in order to learn? Why should he cast the pearls before the swine? St. Theophilact is saying. St. Theophilact says, why should Christ give the holy words, which he says like are like pearls, to a pig. And why the pig, he means in a spiritual, like a pig's just looking to the ground, you know, pig's eyes, and they just look to the ground, they can't look up. And that's what he's trying to say, that people who just look at earthly things are like pigs, eyes down, looking at worldly things, looking at everything, money, property, investments, um, education or degrees or this or jobs, everything, careers, everything, everything, but nothing spiritual. Now, you might say, oh, is it wrong to look for a career? No, but we also have to look up as well. Some things are wrong if they're sinful, but getting a career, making investments, doesn't necessarily mean that that's wrong. But when you're just doing that, then we are likened, all of us, to a pig, to a spiritual pig. In, it is, in fact, an act of compassion. Listen to the words of St. Theophilact. It is, in fact, an act of compassion to remain silent with such men as these. What does he mean by that? It's actually an act of compassion to remain silent with men like that. Who can tell me? Don't be shy. Come on, we have to uh, have a bit of uh, a response sometimes. Maybe if he starts to talk to that man, that man will, in this case, will make more sense by by talking about these things and making love of these things. Uh, and now he just gives a little bit of sense, 
and he has got no answer, so he stopped. That's correct. The sin is less for Herod if Christ was to speak to him and then Herod rejects it, then his sin would be worse. And this is what we do sometimes to people, that we speak to people who are in no way ready and say to them, oh, you have to go and do prichast, you have to go and commune, you have to go and confess, and, you know, this is hell, and this and that, this and that. And people aren't ready. People a lot of times aren't ready. And then all of a sudden they say to you, I'm not interested in that. And by doing that, by saying I'm not interested in that, you've just put them deep into hell because they consciously are rejecting what you're saying. See the discernment? See why for all these talks that I've been doing for all these years that people, some people might have said, he's like he's against people preaching. Can we see now why? Remember when I said to you once that to a relative of mine, I said to her, oh, why don't you go to the priest and confess? This is when I first came to the church. So off she goes to the priest, she listened to me, I convinced her, whatever, and then she went, and then the priest asked her a few questions that she didn't like. And she came back to me and she got so upset. And from that day, she just hated um, confession, hated, um, I don't think she even cared about the church anymore. And she hated me as well and still does to this day. You see? Because she, she consciously rejected everything. So that was my fault. Because I shouldn't have told her anything. I should have asked God, prayed to God and say. Should I speak? Should I not speak? How many of us do that? How many of us in the morning say, uh, enlighten me, should I speak to my husband? Should I say something to my wife? Should I say something to my child? Should I say something to my parents? Should I say something to my cousin, to my best friend, to the person, to this, to that? Do we ever ask for God's enlightenment and, and, and his um, wisdom? No. Because we're professors, we know everything, we just go and do it. And cause havoc. It's like some Orthodox Christians, they're like, it's like... Um, what do you call those things? Tornadoes. Wherever they go, they just destroy everything. And here he comes. He's spinning around. Have you confessed? The car keeps on going. That knocks that person down. Do you read the Bible? You're going to go to hell. Are you doing this? No, that's... Oh, you're going to go to hell. The demons are going to poke you with a stick. And all these ridiculous things that they're saying to people, not realising that they're making these people worse. So they're called hurricane orthodox Christians. They destroy everything in their sight. For the word which is spoken and brings no benefit, becomes the cause of greater condemnation for those who do not listen. There's the answer. It says here, For the word, the word of God, which is spoken and brings no benefit, becomes the cause of greater condemnation for those who do not listen. And that explains why sometimes even priests, while they're doing sermons, speak limited. And some people say, oh, they're not doing their job. They're not speaking. They're not telling people about things. But that's because, you see, it's different here. You people came. You people came. You want to listen. You made the effort. You're sitting on these chairs for hours. You're tired, a bit painful. You're making the effort. So your hearts are more responsive to the word being preached. But when people come to church a lot of times, they might come for... There might be a panahira, like a memorial prayer for the dead. They might come for all different reasons, not necessarily for the salvation. So the priest can't just go and... I would never speak the way I'm speaking now to an ordinary parish. Never. And plus, I've been doing this now. This is, this is talk number 35. 
I let up. If you listen to my earlier talks, I never even spoke like this. I spoke differently. Someone from, from America um, I spoke to on the phone the other day, very nice lady there, who listen, she checks the talks, and she said to me that, uh, oh, you know, your first talks are completely different. I go, well, that's right, because I believe in development. You can't just go bang. I mean, some of you are here for the first time. It's a bit hard, but uh, I understand that. But um, still, and that's why the priests a lot of times don't speak too clearly because it can cause more problems, but they have to do it in a way, slowly, with prayer, with discernment, what they're going to say, how they're going to say it to bring people to the truth. Because I will tell you the truth now, the majority of people that come to church are not leading Christian lives. They are, they are basically pagans, sorry to say, that the majority of Christians, Orthodox Jews that go to church today, do not lead in any way a Christian Orthodox life. And that's why the priest is not as if he's speaking to people that are practising Orthodox Christians. These people are just, for the, for the moment, come for a feast, come for a memorial prayer, come because it's a is someone's um, name day or something like that. But to Pilate, as St. Phil Philak says, but to Pilate, whose disposition was better than Herod's, the Lord did give an answer, but not a clear one. Here it is. Pilate, St. Theophilus says, had a little bit of a better soul. He was a little bit interested, a little bit. Christ did say a few words to him. To Herod, nothing. To Pilate, a few words, but those words were a little bit, not, they, they weren't clear. Why? Because if Pilate was interested, he would penetrate those words, he would get the meaning of it, and then he would ask for further information. But if he doesn't penetrate the first level, Christ doesn't go to anything else after that. And that's why Christ spoke in parables, where he gave stories which looked simple about someone throwing some wheat and things like that. The person who was interested would capture somewhat what he was saying, and the ones who weren't interested walk away saying, that was an interesting story today, the farmer threw some seeds, but their condemnation is less because they're not rejecting. So you see a lot of times Christ did not speak clear to the people as well. He spoke in parables on purpose so as not to give them greater condemnation for rejecting his words. So as I said, some people would say, oh, that's very interesting. The teacher today gave us a lesson on how to throw seeds. And others would say, the seeds must mean the word of God, and they start to penetrate into the meaning. But Herod, he answered nothing, for Herod was nothing but a mocker. We see from these five examples that there was a common demand for a sign or a miracle from Christ, even though these people belonged to different groups, different types of people, but not only that, there was something else about these people that they disregarded the truly amazing miracles of Christ. So not only were they asking for a sign, but the miracles that were done, he re they were rejected and they just they weren't interested in. So what is the reason for this demand by the above people of different walks of life for a miracle from Christ? And the answer where St Ignatius says it is an incorrect I've already hinted at this, and distorted, in other words, a warped, a twisted, a deceptive, 
an unspiritual understanding of miracles which comes from man's fallen nature. Or, in other words, carnal nature. In the Orthodox Church, the fallen or carnal nature is referred to as the flesh. Sometimes people say, oh, the Bible says the flesh, and we think the flesh means the body, but it doesn't. The flesh means the carnal nature, the fallen nature. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, people lost their communion with God, and therefore they became enemies of God, and they, and they had passions, pride, disobedience, self-love. Jealousy, envy, all these passions occurred, and sexual ones. This came from the fallen nature. And because we all have the fallen nature, our minds think in a fallen way. We think in a way which isn't spiritual, and this is what the spiritual life is about. The meaning of the flesh, as understood by the ascetical writings, is the carnal passions or a carnal way of thinking. That's what we mean by the flesh, not the body. See, that's what the Catholics got mixed up with. They go, the, they, you see these movies that they make fun of them. They say, the flesh is evil, the flesh is evil. You have to beat the flesh. And they, all these type of things they were always talking about. They, they thought that in the Bible where it says flesh, that it meant the sexual passions of the body. But they were confused because that's not what it means. That's one aspect. But the flesh also means the incorrect way of thinking, unbelief. Pride, disobedience, all these are, are, are things of the flesh. A carnal mind is a way of thinking about God and all that is spiritual based on man's fallen condition and not on the word of God. In other words, when we base our thinking not on God's word but on our own fallen state, we say things or we think things that are wrong. A carnal person is hostile towards God under the influence of evil spirits and therefore, anything from God is either misunderstood, rejected or distorted, as in the five examples above. All those people that were demanding miracles and were confused, they were enemies of God, hostile, they were, they were deceived, they were disobedient, etc., etc., and all that led them to say, show us a miracle, all this confusion. So that's in the five examples there. So let's have a look. The characters of a spiritual mind are true knowledge of God, living faith, blessed humility of mind, pure prayer, etc. In other words, the holy things, the virtues. The characteristics of a carnal mind are ignorance of God, unbelief, spiritual blindness, pride, self-will, vainglory, disobedience, self-confidence, self-conceit. All these things are of the fallen nature which we all have. And that's what the whole purpose of a spiritual life is. Our purpose of spiritual life is to get rid of all these things which are in us because of our fallen nature and come towards God and receive the virtues which come from God's grace. I've made a little list of some examples of this carnal understanding. Just a few little ones. For example, materialism, material things. The carnal-minded person thinks that happiness is to do with money, with houses, material possessions. And parents, unfortunately, orthodox parents, as I said before about the pagan thing, parents teach their children that this is the main thing in life. 
And the spiritual is very insignificant. You might see people bring their children to church, whatever, a little bit here and there. But the main thing is, is that the children are learning from their parents materialism, obsessed about money and status, etc. The spiritual-minded people look at money as a temptation. They know that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. They look at materialism of having too much as something which deadens the soul. It makes the person lose their spiritual life. The spiritual person um, knows that they're not going to take all that stuff with them. The spiritual person knows that they have to, if they've got a lot, if God's blessed them with a lot, that they have to give to the poor. Carnal people rarely give. And the, uh, because they know, blessed are the merciful, better to give than to receive. That's how spiritual people think. So the, that, that's a difference. Now we go to illnesses. The carnal-minded consider illnesses as the worst thing. Oh, I can't believe it. And the Greeks say about the cancer, and they don't even mention the name. They say, you know, you know, that, that, that thing, and other people's, all these type of uh, things. So the carnal-minded, they look at illness as being the worst thing. And they look at healing as being the most important. They need to be healed, whether it's by miracle where you come to church for the convenience, or from a doctor or whatever. They need a miracle. They want to get better or a cure from the doctors. This is the greatest thing. They don't even think to themselves, is this going to be beneficial for my soul to get better? Is this going to help me to be saved? They don't think like, that's a no-no. The spiritual-minded consider illnesses as allowed by God and that God gives illnesses out of his mercy. See, now, there's a lot of you here that are standing who don't think like that. I know that. So therefore, that's what we say, carnal-minded. Could be myself as well. But the point is, we all should examine ourselves. Do we look at illnesses being from God and for our benefit? Do we look at illnesses being a cleansing? Do we look at illnesses being something which gives us patience? Does it give us trust in God? Do we look at illnesses gives us hope and faith? Does it, do we look at illness as being a preparation for the next life? Do we look at illness as being a bitter medicine for the sick soul? Because we're spiritually sick. And illnesses, spirit, physical illnesses, help to cleanse us, to heal our souls. Helps us towards our salvation. Helps us to attain eternal happiness. Spiritual person thinks about that. The carnal person thinks about now. Marriage and childbearing. The carnal believe that they first have to study and they first have to have fun and they first have to have studies and careers and freedom. You hear them say, oh, I'm not going to be tied down. I've got time to wait for that when I have children. So look at children as negative and financial. They go, oh, I have to be, make sure I'm financially secure. And others say, I don't want to put too much stress you know, on my body. Some women won't have children because they're scared that if they do, that certain parts of their body are going to sag, right? And you know what I say? Good on you. Don't have any children because a mother who, who a woman who just cares about her body, of whether uh, her, she's going to have a flabby stomach or other whatever else she thinks about, and some don't even feed their children breast milk because they're scared that their breasts are going to be distorted or whatever. Those type of mothers, I say, oh, don't have children. Better, better not to have it. I try and tell them, you know, try and leave it for a while. And I'm always hoping that they get to 40, 45, which they say to me, I can't have any more anyway. I go, that's what I was hoping for. 
because those type of mothers wouldn't make good mothers, and the same with men if they're not proper. The spiritual-minded believe that they have to do God's commandment of childbearing, that it's a holy thing, that it's the greatest thing, spiritually beneficial, that they are serving God. And I always often say that the Muslims and the Jews who, who actually say those type of things, they say, um, what greater thing than to have children? That's how some of the, the, a lot of Muslims and a lot of Jews think. This is a great thing. But a lot of Orthodox Christians say that, that's, that's the worst thing. So see the difference. So am, I, am I saying that Muslims and Jews are more spiritual? What I'm saying is on the last day that when we give word that the Muslims and the Jews that will be standing there who did God's commandment, even though they weren't in the truth, will be a condemnation for us who are Orthodox, who knew God's will, who had the truth and didn't do it. That, that will be very, very serious. Divorce. The carnal-minded, they don't think of that. They just say, oh, the slightest problem, they divorce, separate. They don't think about patience, endurance. They don't think about the, the, teach, the, church, the church's teaching on what's a man, what's a woman, what's the role. They don't think about any of those things. The spiritual-minded person will follow and say, this is God's commandment. What God has joined must never be separated. They will try to preserve their marriage. And yes, it's easy to get a divorce these days. It's very easy. But that's a temptation. Back in the old days, it was harder to get a divorce. But today it's easy, which means those people who don't get a divorce, even though it's easy to get a divorce, will be rewarded greatly because that's a very big thing to, to follow God's commandment and try to preserve that marriage to the best of the and not to worry about, oh, I'm going to meet someone else who's going to make me happier and all these type of things. Of course, there are reasons for divorce, but I'm talking about people who just really don't care and do not follow Christ's commandments about, especially about forgiveness. Most marriages break apart because couples don't forgive each other. It's just there's so much pride in them that they just can't even say, I was wrong. That's all it means sometimes. Oh, you know, woman comes up to the man, you ignored me or you didn't care when I was sick, and the man goes, oh, I was, I'm busy. I'm busy, like a caveman. But he doesn't, they doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me. How selfish of me. That's what the woman wants to hear, and vice versa. No, none of that. It's always excuses, excuses, excuses. Abortion. The carnal-minded will say, oh, I'm pregnant. This is, this is no good. I'm too young. Got to study. You hear it all the time on TV. Oh, I need to have a life. I've got to enjoy my life. I've got to, you know, I was raped, for example. Some will say, I was raped. I'm not going to have someone else's child and need to make more money. I need to have a good time. Some even say, oh, this is not a very good time. I just got pregnant. We're, we're going to go on a, on a um, round-the-world holiday. I can't be vomiting in my cabin. I want to be lying on the um, deck in the sun. So we know what they do. Some have shame for the fa family shame because they, they got pregnant, they're embarrassed to say it, whatever, big, big cross, but those who carry the baby and give birth, of course, is blessed by God. And some even say, oh, look, we haven't got, I mean, this, don't laugh. And some even say, um, um, oh, I'm pregnant, but there's not enough room in the car and we can't afford to get a bigger car. And um, we're trying to get the look, look at the seriousness. I know it's, it's, you want to laugh, but more so you should be sick. And they actually have an abortion because the car's too small. Okay? So, 
and they actually don't even think that it's a child and it's, you know, whatever, whatever they think, and it's gone to the level of madness. But in the Orthodox Church, we commemorate the conception of Christ on the 25th of March. We commemorate the conception of the Mother of God, and we only commemorate one more conception of that of St. John the Baptist. We don't commemorate any other conceptions, just those three, which show us that at conception there is a soul there. And don't believe them, that it's just a mass of jelly and things like that. The spiritual-minded, they understand the sanctity of life. They trust in God's providence. If they got pregnant, they didn't expect it. Well, they trust in God's providence. And if they lose their education, they trust in God's providence. Because what's the point in becoming a doctor if at the end of the, time, if the, end of the day you lose your soul? Better to say, if you can't study because you have to have a child, well, better to die not having an education and be saved because we did God's commandments. And plus, it's forbidden by the church. These people have made the thing and say, if a woman's in danger, what they mean by that is that if a woman is, is stressed about it and if she's you know, having thoughts as I said about her body or about her career, that to them is, means the woman's in danger. So the doctor says, so what's, what's the problem? He goes, well, doctor, I can't have the baby because, you know, I've enrolled at the University of Sydney and I'm going to be studying arts and, um, and I can't have the baby. He goes, well, I can see you are in danger. So they sign the paper and they, and they do that. Deaf, the carnal-minded look as it, it's devastating. They look at death as being something that's horrible. I remember I had a uh, communication with this Orthodox priest, very pious Greek priest in, in, obviously in Greece, and I found out that his wife died, his presbytera died. And I, was, I wanted to ring him up, and I thought to myself, Oof, what am I going to say? I wonder how it's going to be. He's probably going to be um, not in a good... So I rang him up, and, I, and, he, and he speaks to me very joyfully. And I go, how are you? He goes, I'm very good. And I go, oh... So I heard your wife died. He said, yes, she did. And I said, so how do you feel? He goes, I feel good. I'm, I'm happy. I said, oh, really? Yep, she died. She died in Christ. She's with Christ. That's all that matters to me, etc. Et and he was speaking with such joy. And he wasn't put on. Someone loses their child. They say, well, I have now a child in heaven that's praying for me. Instead of saying... Oh, there's not gonna, he's not going to be educated. He's, he could have been with, I could have been a grandparent and or, you know, I'm going to miss my brother or my sister or all these silly things. I rang up a person that I found out that someone's passing away, this woman, and um, some relative of hers was passing away. I think it was um, some fellow of hers and um, might have been her brother. And... Um, she was crying and cry. this person goes to church. This person's very, very, one can say, pious, communes often, reads books, etc., etc. And, and then I uh, wanted to ring up to see how this man's going, you know, is he coming close to it so we know how to pray for him and things like that. And she was wailing and wailing and she goes, oh, he's going to be lost, he's going to be lost. And, you know, he's, um, he's so young and, you know, he's got children and what's going to happen to the children? I go, but doesn't God know what's going to happen to the children? She ignored that. And he's so young, but doesn't God know that he's young? And just goes on and at the end, I said nothing. I'm not, I might say anything else. I go, okay, right, okay, all right, bye-bye. And just, just said goodbye to her. And hence what I mean as what Christ says that we cry, that we act as if there's no other life 
and we act like the pagans do, and we don't understand that death is a passage to the next life, and that's the end of it. That's the true life. This is only temporary. This is a preparation. The next is true. What does it matter when the person goes? Whether they're one year old, five years old, 90 years old. It's not when you go, it's whether you are saved. And that's how spiritual people think. Homosexuality is another thing. I mean, Orthodox Christians are getting confused there and they're being brainwashed by the TV and thinking, well, you know, I suppose if they've got love, well, you know, why should we be so horrible to them? And, you know, these are people, I don't even want to go into it because it's um, so stupid. And the other thing is animals and pets where carnal people, you know, they feed them really expensive chicken and vegetable meals and biscuits and there's a whole aisle, a whole aisle, a supermarket of dog, of all these dog and cat foods and things like that. I think even canary stuff. So you're walking through and it's like, because um, I can't walk properly, it's like I say to so I say, let's just go through to have a look and look at how people have become the carnal-minded. They don't understand. Animals are, uh, they're not humans. So I'm walking through and I say to the person with me, I said, oh, I feel like getting into your trolley. The, 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 the aisle is so long and my feet are hurting me. It just goes on and on and on and on. It just goes on forever. A whole aisle dedicated. And, they, and, and if you saw 60 Minutes last week, they actually uh, have, they were talking about all these body parts, like bionic body parts where people can have artificial limbs. And they had a cat there with bionic legs. They actually did an operation on a cat with its back legs and they actually had artificial legs. You know how much that cost? Thousands of dollars. Some of these operations cost $20,000, $25,000. The carnal person thinks about their cat and dog, but the human beings that are around, that's not significant. And the other thing I want to say is, and we think it's, all, uh, we think it's a great thing that the carnal-minded say, um, oh, look, there's a cat it's, it's stuck on a cliff. So they get the rescue people with full-on cranes, full-on cranes, and people with harnesses risking their lives to rescue the stinking cat. You see? Oh, did you hear it? Oh, interesting. I was watching a program, um, a 7 o'clock type of news report, and they have this comedian that comes on talk about news, but they make fun and things like that. Anyway, so the woman, uh, she was making fun of something, and she made reference to pedophiles' children and some joke that the children will report the crimes. It was like a joke, and people laughed. That's what they're doing, joking about pedophilia. Then further on, she made a joke and said something about a Land Rover reversing back over the animal or something, a cat and dog, and you hear the audience go, oh, just like you heard now. See? Oh, for the dog. Oh, for the cat. But for human beings, nothing. And the danger to the rescue person. There was no awe for the rescue person risking their lives and running into burning buildings to rescue dogs. And during Katrina, you see people rescuing dogs. They're rescuing dogs, but there's humans that are, that are there that are stuck. But they're rescuing dogs. Anyway. They have massage parlours. They have the um, pedicures and they have the people that come to your house to bathe your dogs and cats, the poodles and things like that. 
Anyway, we can go on euthanasia, we can go on about suicide, we can go on about the early sexualisation of children, education, body image, the whole thing's become a mess. If you, those people who follow current affairs programs, you see them for years. They spoke about the woman being the perfect woman. Perfect for them means that she looks like a, a dried up stick, like really, really thin, right? And those models, etc., where you can see their bones. And that to them was the perfect woman. And what they did is they pumped people and pumped people and pumped people. So what happened now is there's a catastrophe around the world of young girls who are sick with this and with anorexia, body image, very depressed. There is a catastrophe going on. And now, because it was them that did it, these magazines and news people that did it, now they're trying to make out that they're pro-women who have got curves. They've got, they've got, in other words, women that are a little bit more on the plump side. And they're trying to change the magazines now to say that they try to put women there who are a bit overweight and show them that that's beautiful as well, or whatever else they're trying to say. They're trying to, um, they're trying to cover up. But they were the cause of it. They did that. They did that. And we have today our children that are sick. See? carnal-mindedness. When we go away from the gospel, when we go away from God, that's what happens. And they've made a mess of nearly everything that they've touched. Let's leave it at that for the time being. And we will, um, those of you who find it a little bit difficult to cope, you can have a break. You can, of course, some of you can go. And those of you who would like a second dosage of some information, you're welcome to um, stay. But sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need some open heart surgery. That's what it's called. Sometimes it's a bit of open heart surgery because our hearts are a bit hard. See? And when someone says something to us, it just doesn't penetrate. And sometimes we need that. Now, some, of it, some people will walk away and go, I'm never going to go there again. Did you hear what he said? What kind of a priest is that? I don't care about what's called political correctness to a certain degree. So in other words, we laugh at the joke about the pedophiles molesting the children, but at the cat or the dog being run over by a Land Rover because the person couldn't see, it was oh. Okay, that's a break there. Nicholas just told me just to just to show you why I spoke harshly about that thing with the cat thing, that some big thing happened recently where it's caused outrage all over the world where a lady put a, a cat in, the world, in, the, in, a, in a bin, a garbage bin. And that's caused a lot of people want to kill her, etc., etc. And they're really upset about it. But, you know, if a child gets abused, there's not much of an outrage. And there's no outrage when there's abortions at nine months pregnancy, there's, except for a few people. So I did that on purpose to show how much people will get upset. And what I meant by that is, if you're going to risk people's lives, obviously you put the animal down. Down means you destroy it. So this is the way the world has become. Now, some of you are Russians that lived in Russia, and you know all about the KGB. KGB, secret police, and people were very scared to speak up. I never experienced those things because we live in Australia. I never experienced it. The first time I ever experienced something like that was when I went to Greece in, for the first time in my life in 1974. I was um, 16 at the time. And at that time, the government was 
was a um, military government, Hundao. I didn't really understand that stuff. And I heard my cousins speaking a little bit about it, and then I mentioned it in the street, and they told me to be quiet. They said, shh, don't say that, and they were really, really scared. But I didn't know, being, being ignorant, I didn't know why they were so scared. Obviously, because of, you know that was dangerous in those times to speak negative against a military type of government. The same as in Russia with the KGB, etc. However, I say now that we have another KGB, what's called the WKGB. It's called Western KGB, meaning that just like in Russia, you couldn't speak up. In Western society, you can't speak up on certain issues. One of them is the animals. You've got to be very careful. I've said I've heard people make some say, oh, I can't stand dogs. And they look around, they go, oh, anyone around? And they're truly scared. Women is another topic which is a hot topic, which it's become whereby that's become quite distorted, the whole thing about um, women and women's rights and women's lib and women to be like men. And the whole thing has become um, a mess. Again, people are scared to speak about that. If someone says something on television accidentally against women, he'll be sacked. People will demand for that person to be sacked. Homosexuality is another topic people are scared to speak. So we're not living in a society where they say free, free speech. We're living in a society whereby if you say something negative against these issues, then you could be taken to court. Or you could be, uh, you know, in a way, persecuted. So don't think that we're not living in difficult times. This carnal mindedness is a world without God. I watched a documentary about some Catholic priests that came from Africa to help in Tasmania, and they, um, they were African, black Africans, and they were priests. Catholics, but not awful. But anyway, just interested, I just wanted to see something there. And the, and the priest, one of the priests, he was... He was, I don't know what the word was, he was shocked. He was, he was disgusted with, he goes, in our country, animals are animals. They're not like here. He goes, here, they're like humans. And he was shocked. He was absolutely shocked of what he saw here. You know, like these massages. And it's just gone out of hand. And then, and then people get shocked with, you know, with certain things. The woman put the cat in the, in the wheelie bin. Okay, it's not a nice thing. But the reaction, the world's, the world's outrage and people making death threats to want to kill her, but not for other issues. Let's go. She's under police protection because of that. I didn't follow it, so you know more. Yes, yeah, she's under police protection, yeah. right. So that's it. If someone says to me at the end of the talk, I didn't really understand the definition of carnal-minded. What does it mean? Carnal-minded is that. People who do not think in any way in a spiritual way. I don't even think it's even spiritual. Even on a human level, that's ridiculous. To spend all that money on, on animals and things. And anyway. So, it was a serious sin to demand a miracle from the Lord, a demand inspired by carnal-mindedness. So St. Ignatius is saying that the demand of these people where they kept on asking for a sign from Christ came from being unspiritual. 
being carnal-minded. Upon hearing this disrespectful, this rude, indol- this, this insolent and blasphemous demand, our Lord sighed deeply in his spirit and says, why, did, why does this generation seek after a sign? So from the depths of his heart, Christ says, why does this generation seek after a sign? Truly I say to you, unto you, there shall be no sign be, be given unto this generation. And he left them and entering into the ship again departed. Now I'm going to explain with God's help, what is this he sighed from the interpretations? Now, we know from the Bible that it says, where Christ says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's what Christ said. There is joy in heaven when a person repents. And another part in Luke, I say, this is Christ speaking, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So we know that when someone repents, when someone comes to God, heaven rejoices. On the contrary, there is sorrow in heaven over one who falls into sin and refuses to repent. So in heaven, the angels rejoice when someone repents, and when someone doesn't repent, they have sorrow. And we know that the reason for their sorrow and for their rejoicing is because God wants, as St. Paul says um, in his epistle to Timothy, God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the purpose of God coming to earth. That's why God became man. He came to earth so that people can be saved. And the angels don't do anything opposite to God. If the angels rejoice, it means God rejoices. If the angels sorrow, it means God sorrows. But Saint Macarius the Great, he explains it in a way to understand what it means by God sorrows. Now, before that, I wrote here, on the other hand, the devil does not want anyone to be saved. And with absolute pleasure, he and his demons do everything in their power to obstruct people from reaching heaven. That's their purpose. So all these talks that we've been doing lately is speaking about how the demons, how they actually have worked out things to bring people to deception. Their aim is to bring them away from God. So whether they're visions and all these things that we've been speaking about in all the previous talks, that's what it's all about. Um, Saint Beccarius the Great said that the all-holy, dispassionate God experiences divine sorrow at the destruction of man. Now, this dispassionate God, you see, we say God's anger or God's sorrow. When we get angry, we get angry in a passionate way. It's mixed with our fallen nature. It's mixed with our pride. So even if people punish their children or whatever, it's mixed with irritation. It's mixed with anger. It's mixed with pride. Oh, how dare that child do that? I just told him not or her not, not, not to do it. Or our rejoicing can be also from passion, that we rejoice at someone because it's our child. Or I help that person and look at him now. See, it's all mixed, defiled. But St. Macarius the Great says that God's anger or his love or his, or his um, sorrow 
is dispassionate, without passion. And Elder Porfirios explains that, that when God gives punishment, if he has to, say, bring some type of um, uh, catastrophe or whatever out of a divine punishment, he does not do so with anger that we know. It's not the same. It's dispassionate. It doesn't have passion. It comes from a pure source of his goodness. Even that what he does is for our good. There is no um, way that we know it. Yes, he does punish. Yes, at the end people will go to hell, but that is without passion. So God experiences a dispassionate sorrow at the destruction of men, at the loss of men. Such sorrow arose in the Son of God because of the demand for a miracle, a demand which was prideful, unreasonable, outrageous, disrespectful. That is, the demand came from hostility to God. The people who asked for a miracle did so because they were hostile towards the holies and they were disrespectful. And that's where Christ sighed because it wasn't good what, what they were asking. Because of this, he sighed in his spirit and said, why does this generation ask after a sign? And what did Christ do because of this horrible spirit? What did he do when he noticed their spirit? He just did a miracle, and straight after the miracle, they asked him for a sign. What did he do? He sighed, and what does the Bible say? And he left them. He left them. Now, let's look at what St. Theophilact, how he interprets it. The, this is what St. Theophilus says about that part. He left them. The Lord leaves the Pharisees because they refuse all correction. One must spend time with those with whom there is hope of correction, but turn away from those who refuse to abandon their wickedness. And that's what I was saying earlier on in the talk. Where you see someone has a good disposition, wants to learn, and there's hope of correction, you spend time with that person. But as for a person who doesn't want to change their sins, who doesn't want to stop their sins, they want to do what they want to do, leave them, abandon them. But later on they might change. But at that time, that's not the time. I remember years ago I gave a friend of mine that I used to have a worldly friend before I came to the church. And um, then later on I came to the church and he, he was Catholic anyway, he wasn't uh, Orthodox. After many years of being uh, in the church and then I, I did a few talks as a lay person before I was a priest and I gave some copies of these talks to this friend of mine and he listened to them he actually listened to me and he said to me at the end he goes you know because I can see from what you say in the talks I can see orthodox is the truth I can see that Catholicism is not correct and I can see that I should become orthodox he said all that but I can't. I said, why is that? He goes, because I can't give up my life. I cannot give up my passions and my sins, in other words. I said, that's it, fair enough. I left, he left, he leads his life, I lead mine. But I'm not going to be there like chasing him every morning like some people do and chase, chase, chase and, and say, you know, are you going to change, are you going to change? It make people sick and you make them worse. Just leave him alone. He might change later on. He might, in years to come, remember those talks. Christ departs from those who are bound by carnal-mindedness, who stubbornly dwell in it. This is important. Christ cannot come to a person 
who is carnal-minded, who doesn't think in a spiritual way, but look what's said here, who stubbornly dwell in it. In other words, they want to be that way. Oh, we're all carnal-minded in some ways, some, some more, some less. We all have wrong views, wrong feelings. We all have passions. We can think we're saying something good, but when it's mixed with all these passions, it comes out bad, but we think it's good. But God, that's why God will, will, will tell us at the end what was good and what was not good. What we think is good may be bad, and so therefore um, we shouldn't be blinded and think that everything we do is good, even if it appears good. But anyway, those people, like my friend, who stubbornly dwell, leave. And that's what it says here. Christ left the Pharisees because they didn't even say, yes, we're carnal-minded, like the, like, like the man that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, we're carnal-minded. Yes, we're fallen, but we don't want to be like that. Christ wants that. That's what God wants to hear. Yes, we're carnal-minded, but you can help us. But if they stubbornly desire it, and they have no desire to be healed, he then leaves them to themselves, he leaves them to their choice of destruction. It is important to note that they were fully conscious in remaining firm in their choice. It's a decision that they made. We hear the loss of hope for the salvation of those who made the request because it was contrary to the Spirit of God. And what's the Spirit of God? Humility and love, etc., that's the Spirit of God. These people, when they wanted to see all these amazing things, in a way it came from their pride. God's desire is to grant man forgiveness, healing. When we say healing, not bodily necessarily, that can happen, but the most important healing is spiritual healing. That's why, Christ, that's why God became man, to give us spiritual healing and salvation. That's, that's the whole thing. They didn't want that. They rejected all that. By asking for a sign, they were rejecting these gifts that God came to offer. That's why it was horrible, the spirit. Horrible. Now we come to the confusion. The people who demanded a sign from heaven, this is why they wanted this thing from heaven. They wrongly understood heaven to be that what happens in the air and the sky they in their limited minds they think that heaven is up there and that rain and thunder and lightning comes from heaven therefore the reason for christ's reaction towards those who demanded a sign from heaven is that not all signs that occur in the realm in other words in the air and the sky are from god this is what they were saying. They were saying to Christ, if you were from God, you would perform a, deed, a, a miracle from heaven. You would do a sign from heaven because true miracles come from heaven, from the sky. The ones that you're doing are on earth. Due to their spiritual darkness, they wrongly believed that true miracles from God can only come from heaven, which they thought was the sky and and the air. See, this was distortion, completely, completely wrong belief. 
Blessed Theophilac writes, they ask for a sign from heaven, such as making the sun or the moon to stand still, again that's in the sky, or to send down a lightning bolt in the sky, or change the winds, again in the air with the sky. They thought that he would not be able to perform a sign from heaven, thinking that it was only by Beelzebub, by the devil, that he was able to work miracles on earth. They, what St. Theophilus is saying is, these fools actually believe that the miracles that Christ was doing was with the help of the devil and that the true miracles were like those of the Old Testament, which were from the sky. They wrongly believed that signs on earth were from demonic power and by Beelzebub, by Satan. They wrongly believed. But they were mindless not to remember that even in the Old Testament, Moses in Egypt did many signs that were on earth from God which we'll come to that in a minute. So Moses did miracles on earth that the Jews even know that 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 was from God. And that some things that happened in the air were from the devil, like when fire came down from heaven and destroyed Job's flocks. So then St. Theophilac says, not all things from heaven are of God, and neither are all things on earth from the demons. So this is a completely uh, distorted view of miracles. This is what St. Ignatius says. They were blinded and warped in their way of thinking because of their passions, because of their fallen nature. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of miracles that were in the air which contradict them. The first one, as I said, in the book of Job, it says, the Holy Scripture tells us that by the action of the devil, fire from heaven fell and burnt up the sheep and the servants of Job. A messenger, and then I quote from there, a messenger came and said to Job, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Firstly, heaven, the Jews believed, was the sky in the air, and they had a wrong view that if it happened in the air and the sky, it was from God. And that's why the messenger, even the messengers confused, that came to Job and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. He thought that the fire which came from the devil was from God. But we all know that the devil went to, was speaking with God and asked permission. Those who have read the book of Job will know. The fire formed in the air just like lightning. So what happened was the devil made fire to form in the air, came down, destroyed Job's um, animals, and even even killed his ten children, etc., etc. Now, there was another miracle, sorry, no, there was another satanic miracle, which we read in the Acts of the Apostles, which was performed by a pagan, Simon the Magician. He astounded the spiritually blind, and I love that expression, the spiritually blind, because only the blind spiritually would even be amazed by such stupidity. And with the power of Satan that was mistaken as, a, as power from God. They thought that this magician who was using the devil's power was from God. Simon astounded many who were gathered to him. He declared himself a god and he said that he's going to rise in the air. And suddenly he started to rise up in the air. They would have known, that, so the Jews would have known, because they were familiar with pagan practices, that right through the time of history of the world, that pagans would do these miracles in the air. They knew that, but yet 
they still said, oh, only true miracles are, from the, are in the air and the sky. But that's how, that's how spiritual blindness is. So this man lifted up in the air. We've talked about that in the last talks. Some of you have missed them. How the monk got deceived and how the demons came to pick him up and take him up. And he thought in his deception, are oh, they going to come and take me to heaven? His spiritual father says, they're not going to come and take you to heaven. They come to destroy you. And the monk was holding, the spiritual father was holding on to the monk. And the demons were trying to rip him away from the, from the spiritual father. And they ripped his clothing off. And then they saw the clothing going up, 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 up. And after some while, it came down, floating down. And then the spiritual father said to the deceived monk, see, that's what they're going to do. They're going to lift you up and drop you down and kill you. And we know from the black magic, magic in Africa that those, a lot of those um, witch doctors and all that, they can float in the air and things like that. A lot of these gurus can do things like that. So levitation. Of course, some of them are tricks. We know that magicians can do tricks, but some of them are real where people do actually float. And that's from the power of the demons. So these Jews would have known that. But of course, they still went on. Now, let's look at another contradiction where let's look at some miracles that occurred in the Old Testament on earth, not from the devil. Because remember, the Jews were saying, all miracles on earth are from the devil. Oh, the multiplication of the bread is from the devil. When Christ expelled the demon, that was from the devil. The paralytic man, that was from the devil. All these stupid, stupid, stupid things that they were saying. Oh, he made that blind man well, that was from the devil. But we see from their Old Testament, for example, once the Hebrews came to a place where the water was bitter, they could not drink it and complained against Moses and said, you took us out of Egypt, but we had water there. Now we're in the desert, we've got no water. The Lord showed Moses a tree, and as soon as he had placed the tree in the bitter water, the water became sweet. That's a well-known miracle that we accept, and even the Jews to this day accept. That's what happened in the Old Testament. They, they are familiar with that. The poisonous snakes is another miracle. Because of their constant complaining against God, they were complaining, complaining, complaining. The Jews for the whole 40 years complained. The Israelites were punished by plagues of poisonous snakes which bit the people and caused many to die. The Israelites repented and asked Moses to pray for them before God. So the Lord, God, commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on top of a pole. Whoever had been bitten and with faith looked on the bronze serpent that person, even though they were bitten, did not die. They lived. And that, of course, the pole and the serpent, the bronze, represents Christ's crucifixion. But that's uh, another time. Another one, water from a rock. When the Hebrews came to a desert place, there was no water again. And then they again began to complain against Moses and said, we're going we're to die of thirst here. At God's command, Moses struck a stone cliff with his staff, with the stick, struck it, and water flowed out like a gushing river. That's another miracle. On earth, from God. So we've, got, we've so far got the, the bitter water, that's one. The poisonous snake, that's two. Water from a rock, that's three. Now we come to number four, the walls of Jericho. The Hebrew people wanted to capture the city of Jericho, which was very high and had strong walls. Joshua, by God's command ordered the people with the priest in front with the Ark of the Covenant, that's the Ark which held the, 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 the Ten Commandments that, that Moses got from the Sinai, to walk around the city for seven days. After this, the walls of Jericho crumbled to their foundation. In this way, the Israelites took the city. 
This is a miracle in the Old Testament, which they're aware of, which is from God on earth. These are miracles that happen on earth. So their logic is really um, saying what happens when people become spiritually blind. And one more, the Red Sea. The Hebrews, after their departure from Egypt, set out for the Red Sea. And the Egyptians, however, they began to regret that they had let the Hebrew people go because of all the plagues and all that. And the Egyptians, however, began to regret. Pharaoh gathered all his army with chariots and soldiers on horses and set out to pursue the Hebrews. He overtook them at the edge of the sea. Upon seeing the terrible armies of Pharaoh behind them, the Hebrews were terrified. Instead of praying to God for help, they began to complain to Moses for bringing them out of Egypt. While offering them encouragement, Moses prayed in his heart to God, and the Lord heard his prayer. The pillar of cloud stood behind the Hebrews and hid them from the Egyptians. So some cloud went behind them so that the Egyptians couldn't see them because it was they were hid behind a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, take thy staff and stretch thy hand over the sea and divide it. So I assume with one hand his, his rod and the other hand his hand, and he stretched it over the, the sea. And the Lord sent a strong east wind which blew all night, and the water drew back. The Hebrews went along the dry bottom as the water became like a wall on the right and the left. So the water separated, lifted up high, so that the Hebrews could then go through the sea on, on dry land there, the, the ground. So the Egyptians chased the Hebrews into the depths of the sea and came far across as the middle of the sea. At that time, the Hebrews came out the other side. Moses again stretched out his hand with his rod in his hand over the water and the water of the sea fell back into place and covered the entire army of Pharaoh and drowned the Egyptians. This is a miracle that happened on earth. And these miracles are good to know because they often refer to these miracles when we read the New Testament. So, I'm going to read three little, three little uh, parts of the Bible which testify to the fact that these people were spiritually sick. The one was a mute demon-possessed man. So this was uh, uh, while they were walk going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, similar to the other one, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was cast out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing like this has ever been seen, you know, that a person who's possessed and cannot speak to become better. But the Pharisees said straight away, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. The second one, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Not the fact that he couldn't speak, but also he was blind. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow cuts out demons. There's another example there. I'm emphasising this part about they see a miracle and straight away they say what he's doing. The third one, and they went into a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. There were so many people. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. And the scribes, in other words the teacher of the law, who came down from Jerusalem said, 
He's possessed by Beelzebub, by, by Satan. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, not clearly, not to make their sin worse, but parables, like a little story. How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against, against itself? That kingdom cannot stand and so on. As the, the Christ goes through an explanation that what they're saying was silly. Now, Blessed Theophilus says, when those who, see when, when the gospel says, when those with him heard, and he's saying meaning his own family, his brothers from Joseph, not the mother of God, or perhaps those of his own city. Remember, a prophet is not, is not accepted in his own country or soil, village, whatever, or even his own brothers. They went to lay hold of him, for they said he's beside himself, that he's mad. When they saw him doing all those miracles, they actually thought he had, was possessed and crazy. That is, he has a demon. For when they heard that he was casting out demons and healing the sick, healing the sick, out of envy, in other words, out of their jealousy, they thought that he had a demon and so he was beside himself. So in other words, clearly they believed that he was healing with the power of the devil. So they wanted to lay hold of him in order to tie him up as they used to do with those who were demon-possessed. Those with him, meaning his own family, not the mother of God, acted in this manner, but the scribes from Jerusalem thought the same as well. So it wasn't just the people of his village or the people in the town or his brothers. It was also the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes that joined in. And they thought as well and said he had a demon. They all believed he was possessed. Since they had nothing to say against the things that he did, they found another way to stand the miracle, saying that he did these things with the help of demons. So that's the explanation of Saint Theophilact. He further says, these words, Saint Theophilact says, is the height of stupidity. Nothing can be more stupid than what they're saying. For no demon casts out other demons. But let us suppose that he does cast out demons as one who serves the prince of demons. Let's assume that Christ did have the power from the devil to cast out the demons. How, how, and that he, was a, that he was a magician. How then, says Blessed Theophilact, did he heal diseases? How did he forgive sins? How did he preach the kingdom and say all those beautiful words, those divine words? For the demon does the opposite. He brings diseases and separates man from God. So this was contradictory. This was contradictory to say that. Because yes, he took out demons, which they believed was from the demons, but he also did many other great miracles, which only God can do. But they ignored all that. Saint Kirill of Alexandria says that they were even gnashing their teeth, like, like they were grinding their teeth at Christ, the Saviour of all, because he made the multitudes wonder by his many divine and astonishing miracles. That's what, they were, that's what their evil came from, that the people were moving away from them and going towards Christ. Sometimes... Clergy do that too. Sometimes clergy do that too. If they're not priests for the right reason, 
bishops, priests, whatever, they get jealous. They go, oh, look, look at that elder, look at that holy person. Elder Porfirios, by the way, was disliked by a lot of bishops and, and um, clergy. For example, when I went to Greece back in the 80s, I had a certain spiritual problem and I wanted, in those days, I wanted to find, before I was a priest, I wanted to find someone that was spiritual. So I asked this, uh, some people, I go, tell me, you know, tell me about some, uh, some spiritual people so I can go and visit them, so I can ask them some questions. And they mentioned this and this and that. Um, but they never mentioned Elder Porfirios, who was just outside Athens. And they never mentioned... Elder Yakovos, who was at Evia, which we got his book at the back, uh, another great saint, never mentioned him. But I'm just surprised that I was asking people that, you know, you live in this country, tell me they never mentioned any of them. See, a prophet is not welcomed in his own town. In other words, a lot of times we have saints among us that are rejected. So the Pharisees and the scribes were jealous because the people were going to Christ, but also Christ's relatives or countrymen were jealous because they saw that Christ was gaining authority and, and, and attention, and they were jealous, like simple people. Don't people get jealous? You see it even in, when you say um, uh, um, people that have got jealous minds, they get jealous if they see someone who all of a sudden becomes rich. Or someone all of a sudden, you know, becomes more spiritual or whatever. There's all these different reasons. People get jealous. Well, that's what the same thing. They got, they got jealous. The mute, uh, now St. Kirill goes on, and this is important. The mute devils, in other words, demons that make people not to be able to speak, are difficult for any of the saints to expel. We have many saints that would never do it. And are more stubborn than any other kind. These type of demons are stubborn. They don't come out easily and are greatly fearless. As we know, when we read the lives of saints, we see the demons sometimes answering back and saying, I'm, you know, I'm not leaving. And we saw that even St. Nectarius was shocked when he was trying to help that woman in the three talks before, talk 32, I think, whereby um, the woman, Katarina, I think, I forgot her name, and... Um, and then she finally got better after he died, where he received more power. And he said to the people, I've never seen such a demon as that woman had. So yes, they are like that. Um, but this was nothing difficult to the all-powerful will of Christ, the Saviour of us all. What's that to Christ? Nothing. Not like some stupid Greeks that say, oh, the, yes, I believe in demons, because even Christ went back because he got scared. Just carnal-mindedness, that Christ was scared of the demons. Um, that's what the demons inspire them to believe. So that instead of coming to the church, which is Christ's church, if someone's sick or got a problem, they run to the magicians to get the demons out because Christ was scared of the demons, but the magicians are not. And upon the accomplishment of this wonderful act... The multitude highly praised him. Simple people, people who had some disposition, they saw. They go, this is this is never known before for someone to make a possessed person to be to to be well. 
Um, but certain of them, in particular the scribes and the Pharisees, with hearts drunk with pride and envy, found in the miracle fuel for their sick state. And not only did they not praise him, but they did the opposite by rejecting the godlike miracle by saying that Christ's source of power was the devil. It is as if they were saying that the devil has almighty power. That the devil has the power and Christ didn't have power. Or that, sorry, that the devil gave the power to Christ. All this complete confusion. You might say, that was then. Yes, they're confused. They were Jews or they were scribes, but not now. We're orthodox. This and that. All the, I've got lists. I don't know if I've got time. I've got lists of all the distortions in the church today of people that are confused. I tell you the truth, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may say. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is subject to eternal condemnation. He, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Christ said, I tell you the truth, that sins will be forgiven people except one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now some people believe blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means if you swear or blaspheme at God or something like that. And of course that could be part of it. But no, there's something deeper to that. And who I'm going to explain it to you. But not from my words. I'm going to explain it using the words of Blessed Theophilac, which says, what is he saying here is this. What he's saying is this. Whatever other sin a man may commit, he will perhaps have some excuse and obtain forgiveness since God is forbearing. God is loving, patient, and he understands human weakness for example when they said that the lord was a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of publicans and sinners or that he associated with prostitutes whatever all those things that they were saying they would be forgiven for this why because people were shocked they're saying how can a prophet associate with these bad people and how can how can he be god if we see him eating and drinking. So they were scandalised. They couldn't understand that, that God became man, but he became fully man. He was still, that he was human as well as God, and that he ate, that he drank, etc. But also his association with these people was to bring them to the truth. But for the Jews, it was like, to, humanly speaking, they say, oh, this, is, um, this cannot be God. So that will be forgiven them, because they did it out of ignorance. But when... They see him working extraordinary miracles. In other words, I add, miracles that only God could do. I add that. And then blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That is, blaspheme the miracles that took place through the Holy Spirit. How will they then obtain forgiveness unless they repent? So yes, they will be. Some people think, oh, once you say that, you're never forgiven. But the same Theophilact explains you're not forgiven because you don't repent. If you repent, then you're forgiven. That's what people get confused as, will not be forgiven, Christ says, will not be forgiven. But the, the fathers of the church explain, if they don't repent. For, where, for when they took offence at Christ, what Christ did in the flesh, in this case was the body, they were forgiven this even without repenting. See, they will be forgiven even without repenting. What kind of words are these that we hear today? For they saw 
for what they saw scandalized them as men. As human beings, they were scandalized. Like today, watch out that we don't condemn someone who's against the church or the priests. For example, if a person comes to me and says, priests are human beings only, I, I, I watch to see what's his spirit. What, what does he mean? If his spirit comes from ignorance, which a lot of people have, they have no idea what priesthood is, I'm lenient, I'm different. It's not the same. We've got to be careful when someone says, oh, I don't believe in the church. I don't believe in priests. Watch out. There's two different types of people. There's a person who is looking at the priest as a human being and says, how can he read prayers and forgive people? How can he pray for someone and get them out of hell? How can he baptise someone and then all of a sudden the demons leave that? They can't understand that. Fair enough. They may be forgiven from their ignorance. However, we go to the second lot of people. However, if they've seen the works of the church, if they've seen true miracles of the church, if they've seen the power of the priest, etc., 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 and they still reject, then they are blasphemers of the Holy Spirit, then they won't be forgiven unless they repent. See, the two different types of people. I notice that with people. There's people who are truly, or, they, or there are some people out of weakness, they say, oh, priests, you know, they, they, um, they say your sins. Some people say that. Oh, they, all they care about is the money, which is true. Some only do care about the money. Um, they say um, the church is like a business. Well, the way they've set up some churches, that's how it is. People get scandalized and they go against the church for that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going against it because deep down they are saying, but the church shouldn't be that. So in other words, they're saying the church shouldn't be for money. So it's not as if they're really going against the church, but they're saying, but the priest shouldn't be like that. See, that's different to a person who is completely, completely against because he's an enemy of God. Some people can be against priests and not be an enemy of God, but be from ignorance. Let us be careful of when we condemn, as we see from here. For when they took offense at what Christ did in the flesh, they were forgiven this even without repenting. For what they saw scandalized them as men. But when they saw him doing the works of God and still blasphemed, how will they be forgiven while remaining unrepentant? If they remain unrepentant, they won't be forgiven. If they repent, they'll be forgiven. Because when you don't repent, like the man I said to you that came to the monastery to do some work, and he says, I feel something, but I don't like it. In other words, he closed his heart and he goes, I don't want the grace, what he was saying. I don't want the grace. He started to experience the grace of the church, but he rejected. You see, that's different to a person who's never experienced the church's grace. In point of actual fact, some of us might think, oh, those people who are against priests and all that will, be, will go to hell. But actually, it might be us that go to hell, not them, because we have experienced God's forgiveness. We have experienced God's grace. We have experienced God's miracles in our life, etc. And if we reject it and remain unrepentant, in other words, we reject or we lead us some type of um, um, worldly life, then we become blasphemers of the Holy Spirit. Now, dreams. I talk about dreams, people read about dreams, but yet Orthodox Christians today still believe in dreams. That's a distortion. So don't say, 
How did those Jews in those times see Christ doing the miracle and they said it's from the devil? It sounds like unbelievable. But yet today in, in the Orthodox Church, we see people who, even though the Holy Father say, don't believe in dreams, they believe in dreams. And I've said to you, I can do a talk on dreams. At the end, a person will come up to me and go, I saw a dream. Straight after that. So why do we say, oh, the Jews in those times, they were really, something was wrong with them. What's the difference? Mind reading. Some people say, oh, if someone knows my thoughts, that means they're from, it's from God. And some people say, oh, you know, we go to, um, and, you know, the, um, the magician and they read our minds or something like that or they said something, how many children we've got, and straight away they go, oh, that's from God. But they don't understand, they don't read, and a lot of people do. They read it and they don't understand that the devil can tell them these things. Such distortions, visions and apparitions. People that see visions and apparitions and say, I saw the mother of God. Oh, I saw my father that died. Yes, and what did he say? Did he ask for prayers? No, no. He said to water the garden. Really spiritual, spiritually significant, something which is that God allowed this soul to come to the person, to remind the person. These are the stupid messages that, that, that people say with these visions. But yet, they believe it. Okay. Now, we hear the church condemns and says clearly that the Pope of Rome has, is not a bishop as orthodox bishops. And we have church history, the Holy Fathers, etc., St. Nectarius, St. Nicodemus, St. Eustin Popovich, St. Nikolai, St. Oh, there's so many of our saints which say clearly that the Pope is not. But yet, we have Orthodox Christians, in particular bishops or priests or theologians or patriots or whatever, who say that the Pope is a brother, that he is the same and he has priesthood just like they do. Now... We're gonna, are we going to sit here and say, oh, those Jews were so silly in those times to say such distorted things? It's just unbelievable. Or it doesn't even sound like it's even true. You're saying, people like might be saying to me, you're saying that Christ did a miracle that took out these demons, and then they're saying, oh, it's from the demon. And then I'm saying to you, well, let's forget about those times. Let's, let's look at today. Praying with heretics is another thing. We see church canons, lives of saints. The saints did not pray with heretics, with people from other faiths. It's forbidden, but they do it. How do they justify it? Love. They've got more love than the Holy Fathers. They've got more love than God. See, that's distortion. You, just, you, you say to yourself, how do they do it? Ecumenism with pagans, with Jews, with Muslims. Muslims say that Christ is a prophet, one of the prophets. But the main and the last prophet is Muhammad. That's what they say. While the Jews say that, that um, Christ is an imposter, that all these things about the resurrection, the dead, was all made up by the Christians, all propaganda, it's all lies, which Christ even prophesied about that. He said that that's what they're going to do, and they still do it. Some, I know someone who works for one, and he actually said that he overheard a Jew say, a Jewish person say, all oh, those things about the resurrection, it's all lies. It's all propaganda. Anyway, they believe that. They can believe what they want. That's okay. That's, that's their business. But the point is, 
that they say that the Messiah is to come, that the Messiah hasn't come. Now, I saw a clip of a high-ranking Orthodox uh, person, Hierarch, that entered into a synagogue with Jews and was praying with them, and they were singing, they were singing a song which was saying, Come Messiah, come Messiah, in front of this Orthodox bishop. Come Messiah. In other words, that he's saying to the bishop, the Orthodox bishop, the Messiah that you believe in is an imposter, but we are waiting for the real one. Things unheard of, so we can see distortions there. Women priests, where's the re reference to women priests? But we see Orthodox people praying with women priests and recognising them. There's no reference, there's nothing, there's nothing there. As I said before, some people got shocked when I said, I've got no problem with women priests. As long as they're not in the Orthodox Church. They can, they can have them, uh, that's inevitable that they're going to have them and homosexual priests and everything else they've got. It's inevitable. It's part of the pattern. It's like it leads to there, to there, to there, and soon they're going to have... Ready for it? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. They might even, because of the thing about the pets, they might even have a dog as a bishop, whereby they might have them as well. Well, why not? It's inevitable. It's inevitable. They're going that way. But, but I've got no problems with that if they've got dogs, if they've got bows, if they've got Ronald can be the bishop. I don't care. Ronald McDonald doesn't bother me as long as it's not in the Orthodox Church. Now, um, prayers for the dead. People do not even understand in the Orthodox Church that what was the purpose of praying for the dead? They just think, oh, when people die, they go to heaven. And we, gave, we, we, we did a whole talk on that, Talk 29 and 30, which spoke about that. I'm not going to go into that. And St. Paul's teaching about women with their jewellery and clothing and this. We see, we hear it, we read it. We know about it, but yet women still come to the church with makeup, with jewelry, with etc., like full on, as if they're a Christmas tree. And they think that they are, I don't know, that everyone's going to look at them or something. I don't know. But that's against the church canon. So let's not look at the Jews and say, oh, look what they did. That's distorted. That's crazy what they did, but it's crazy now when we know it's against the church canons. And St. Paul is against it as much as the Holy Fathers were against makeup and all these things. But still, that's a, that is a problem. But let's not just look at the Jews and say, oh, they were, they were warped in their thinking. And this Halloween that the Americans do, I think it's coming here as well, that they actually make like, encourage children to be interested in goblins and, war and witches and ghosts and sa satans and all these type of things. You say to yourself, this is a Christian country America must be a, like pretty much a Christian country, and yet what carnal mindedness is that to actually even think that that's a joke? A person telephoned for some help the other day about their daughter who was seeing visions while she was awake of some young boy. And I said to her, okay, well, it could be uh, attention. Maybe she's doing it for attention. I goes, no, she's not an attention seeker. But we know when parents say something, I never believe them because parents a lot of times are blind to their own children. But anyway, she said, no, she's not an attention seeker. She's, um, she's never done this before. I go, well, maybe because she's had some family crisis, it's like some separation between the parents. Maybe she's having a breakdown and she's starting to hallucinate. She's taking medication? No. 
any drugs, no, very just she's young, you know, maybe 11 years old or something, and she sees this thing at school. It's a vision of a boy, and the boy's calling her. And I said to her, well, I don't know whether it's demonic, whether it's psychological, whatever, you know, so I spoke to the girl over the phone and I asked a number of questions. Have you ever been mixed up in seances? And she said no. She said no. I go, well, have you been watching, like, satanic movies? She goes, I don't like that stuff. I'm scared of them. I go, right. So do you read satanic books? No. And then later on, somehow the conversation got about her cousin, that she's got a cousin who's into demonic things, and um, he, um, he believes he's like a Satanist and stuff like that, and that they did Ouija boards together, which is seances. Anyway, I don't think she knew what... I don't think she knew what... Uh, anyway, she said... We did a, like a board and we got a board and he was calling spirits and he's got, and he had in a box or potions of all these demonic things and all that. I said, did you touch him? She goes, yes. Did you participate in the seance? Yes. And I said to her, well, look, firstly, uh, souls of people don't come back. That's very rare and, you know, that's not. What does he want? Let's see. Remember from talk 28, we, um, we read there that souls are allowed to come back, usually to warn a person to change their life or to ask for prayers. Yes, maybe, exceptional. Don't even ask for those type of things. It's dangerous. But anyway, I asked her, what does the boy want? He goes, He's, he said that he wants me to help him find his mother. So no spiritual significance. Anyway, so she started to deal with the counsellor and the counsellor of the school came and thought she was making that up and said, let's go closer to where you see this boy in the playground. No one else could see it, and then they started to... And as she walked closer, she was crying, but the boy was going further and further away and then vanished this and that. Anyway, I said to her, look, I don't know what it is, whether it's she's hallucinating, whether she's got a breakdown, whether she's really seen things or not. I said, what we'll do is all I can do is we'll do commemorations of the liturgy, and that's it. So we started to do some commemorations of the liturgy, and she telephoned a day later, and she goes, oh... I go, well, how's it going? She goes, oh, she doesn't, uh, less. And then the next day, less, 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 less. And after about three or four, maybe five liturgies, I go, how about now? She goes, nothing. Does she talk about it? She goes, she won't talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it because she thinks it's going to come back. Which to me shows the girl wasn't really looking for attention because if she was looking for attention, she would have kept on talking about it. But she didn't. So what it was, I don't know. I'm not going to say I don't have the discernment. I don't have that gift. I can, I can guess, perhaps, and just say, well... It sounds like this boy, this cousin, is a demonic young child because he gets pictures of his parents and gouges out their eyes and wants them to die and things like that. And he's, he's got some... You know, some people mucking around. They don't have power. Some people do. I think this kid's got some demons on him. And the seance, as I said, you called spirits and it's evil spirits. That's what could have happened. And anyway, with the, with the liturgy, no exorcisms, not necessary for exorcisms and all these things, which only would have brought them back on, down on her if, if they were done. But just simple liturgies. She, she was young, this and that, and that was it. Told her to go and confess and do not ever delve in those things again. Right? Now, that's just a story to show you that um, uh, these things do um, exist and that these Harry Potter things and Halloweens and all that type of stuff are really bringing demons onto our children and whoever else watches them and causing a lot of problems 
where people think, oh, my child's got psychological problems, but it could not be psychological, it just may be demonic. So we do not go there, we don't go to magicians, we don't go, we've done all talks about that. Again, I'm not going to say that what she had was demonic, I don't know. However, the liturgies, when a priest commemorates at the liturgy, nothing is higher than that. And remember that. Always go and ask your priests for commemorations to commemorate the liturgies. Give your names to monasteries in the liturgy and miracles can happen. And that, that girl now, from what I can see, is, is again peaceful. She doesn't see it anymore. Whether it comes back or not, I don't know, but personally, I don't think. Now... It is a terrible misfortune when one takes the works of the devil for the works of God. So this is what St. Ignatius is saying. He's saying that this is a really bad state, a spiritual state, when people say that what's from the devil is from God and what's from God is from the devil, like something's gone wrong there. This is due to the lack of true knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God, a lack of spiritual understanding. In other words, as we said before, carnal-mindedness. Before the second coming of Christ, when Christianity, spiritual knowledge and discernment become scarce to an extreme, then, as St. Matthew says, which what, what Christ writes, says, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, Christ warns in his own, with his own words that the time will come and there's always been times with that, but it's going to get worse and worse and worse, and I believe these are times where it is pretty bad, where false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The elect means that even those who are spiritually minded Christian, Orthodox Christians, who have knowledge, could even be deceived. See, I have told you beforehand... Christ says, I have warned you. Now there is, for example, in um, Africa, some person who calls himself prophet something, I'm not going to say because I know you're going to go and jump on the internet to look for it. And uh, I went and looked at it a little bit and I tell you, I've watched a lot of those things. To me, they're just ridiculous. This person supposedly predicted, and he calls himself prophet too, his person does all miracles. Oh, open. Just does all miracles. People run into him. And he predicted some, and he, something to do with an aeroplane that was going to crash, some English aeroplane, and that he saved them and all this type of stuff. Now, this person, when I, when I saw him in this little video thing, I felt sick. I felt bad. It's something that this man has demonic power for sure. And this person... He's doing miracles openly in front of everyone. He actually says, we're going to do a miracle today. You see? False prophets, false Christs will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Meaning that today, unfortunately, Orthodox Christians are confused, including, including Orthodox priests who are not diligent in studying the word of God, the Holy Fathers, 
not leading a spiritual life because it's not enough just to study. You people think, oh, yes, as long as I study and read, then that's enough. It's not. One has to lead a spiritual life. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. Not just hear the word of God, but and do it. And we have to be leading an intense spiritual life to be able to protect ourselves. St. Theophilus says, when the Antichrist is about to come, there will be many false Christs and false prophets who, in order to deceive, will play tricks with the eyes by means of apparitions of demons. And by the way, there's always been forerunners of the Antichrist, always, even from generations back. There's, there's, it doesn't mean that because it's happening now that the Antichrist is going to come in a few years. We don't know, but they're multiplying. It's getting more and more and more and more. And Saint Blessed Theophilus says that they will deceive people's eyes. It will be visual by apparitions of demons making demons appear but thinking that they're angels or whatever else they think that, that, that they're seeing. So, he says, that if the righteous were not sober-minded, in other words, serious, thoughtful, vigilant, cautious, watchful, studying the word of God, leading a spiritual life, even they would be deceived. But behold, I have foretold these things to you, in other words, what Christ said, you have no excuse, Christ is saying to us, you have no excuse for it is within your power not to be deceived. If we become deceived, it's because we allowed it. Christ says that clearly. Humility does not bring deception. Where there is humility, there is protection. God protects the humble. As for as we notice from all those talks, talk 32, talk 33, talk 34, that's about four talks that I've been doing, we noticed in those people that were deceived, etc., that they all had one thing in common, pride, vainglory, disobedience, etc. So Christ said, I have warned you that if you have, you have no excuse, for it is within your power not to be deceived. The Antichrist himself will generously bestow miracles upon mankind. Now, I'm going to go a little bit about the Antichrist. I'm not an Antichrist. I'm a person who likes to talk about it. But because St. Ignatius does talk about it in his article that he wrote, I will touch on it because it's got significance. I know there's some priests that just talk about it all the time in 666 and things like that. Those things are significant to some extent. But I'm not one who is going to go on that because an understanding of Antichrist things needs spiritual life. There's no spiritual life. You can talk about Antichrist all day and all night, and the people people think and say to me, I've read all, all the books about Antichrist. And I said, but you know what? I mean to be rude with respect. You'll be the first one that will fall down at his feet. And he goes, how can you say that? I know that. Yes, you know. You've got knowledge of it, but you don't have the spiritual power to resist, which comes from spiritual life. And knowledge puffeth up. The knowledge that you've got gives you pride that you know all about the Antichrist. Pride, will, you'll fall. You need spiritual life. And that's what happens today. People not leading spiritual lives, they know a lot, but it makes no difference because people will fall. 
if they are not leading spiritual lives. The Antichrist himself will generously bestow miracles upon mankind. Now, let's see the significance and why Christ got upset, one can say, when they're asking for signs. He will astound and satisfy the ignorant and the carnal-minded. The carnal-minded, the people who are unspiritual, will love those miracles. They will really love those miracles. He will give them the signs from heaven for which they seek and thirst. We're getting close now that Christ went against them. He left them, as it says. He didn't want to deal with them when they're asking for something because what they were asking for is touching on what the Antichrist is going to do. The Apostle Paul says in the Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one, meaning the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. Whatever the Antichrist does is with power from the devil. Whatever the forerunners do, people who are doing magics and all these tricks, that comes from the devil. With all power, signs and lying wonders, they will have power. Look, St. Paul says it clearly. They will have power, they will do signs, they will do wonders, but they'll be lies. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish... Those who aren't being saved, those who aren't struggling to be saved, he's saying, will perish because they will fall and believe these things. And because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They didn't look for the truth. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that God will allow them to be deluded, that they should believe the lie. God will make them believe the lie. Because, why? That they will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, those Pharisees and the other people who are asking for signs weren't looking for the truth. And these people in the time of Antichrist, or even now, people who aren't looking for the truth, people who aren't looking for the salvation of their souls, God will give them to be condemned or to be deceived. The ignorant and carnal-minded, says St. Ignatius, seeing these miracles, will not stop to think about them. They're going to see and go, that's from God. In their spiritual blindness, they will immediately accept the activity of Satan as the greatest manifestation of the power of God. Why? Because their spirit is similar to the spirit of the miracle. In other words, the spirit of the people who are looking at these and accepting them is demonic. The miracles are demonic. Like is attracted to like. When we cultivate energies which are demonic, then we are attracted to demonic. When we, when we are trying to cultivate God to come in our hearts, then we become more inclined to godly things. So these people that lead bad lives will accept these miracles because they're similar spirit. The Holy Fathers say that the Antichrist will be accepted very quickly, easily, without thought or examination. There'll be no examination of the miracle. Orthodox Christians, what did, what, did, what did we say two, week, uh, two months ago? Test the spirits to see if they're from God, St. John says. Test the spirit. 
Look, examine. See, the girl says to me, the, this, this person came to her. Examine. Okay, what did the person ask for to find their mummy? See, this is ridiculous. That's completely contrary to the Orthodox Church. Souls that very rare to be allowed. Oh, and sorry, and, and a very um, strange thing is that the girl was saying that the boy told her his name and the counsellor didn't believe it, so he looked at because the girl was saying he, he, he died 10 years ago and he used to come to this school. So the counsellor looked up records, old records, and found that there was a boy with that name that died 10 years ago. Interesting, isn't it? So... Um, the Holy, yeah, so people will not realise that his miracles do not have any sensible purpose or spiritual significance. That would be silly. He says it here. Look, look what St. Ignatius says. These miracles will be alien to the truth, filled with lies, deceptive, vainglorious, you know, showing off, hypocritical, silly, empty, astonishing and captivating, hypnotic, Similar to the computer games and the television. 3D, you know, these 3D things now with the glasses. All these hypnotics and works, this is my, I'm saying this, all these things are actually uh, getting people used to be wanting visual stimulation, wanting something which is spectacular. And that's what all these things are, these audio-visual. It's to do with the eyes. Now, is it a coincidence that the Antichrist's miracles and his forerunners, that at the end, we might not live during the, we, There's a high chance we might live for the Antichrist. That, that's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what St. Ignatius is talking about. That even those who are doing satanic things today, what is it? Visual. The signs of the Antichrist will be primarily in the air. For it is, in the, it is in the air that Satan mainly rules. St. Paul actually says that the ruler of the kingdom of the air, see, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in the work of those who are disobedient. So St. Paul saying that the ruler, the demons, are actually in the air. For our, in another quote he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What did I say to you before? That, the, that when we say heavenly, it doesn't necessarily mean the kingdom of God, which proves it because the demons are not in heaven. The heavenly realms here mean the air, the sky. So that's why... We say God sent down fire from heaven, that they were mixed up. I'm not saying that St. Paul's mixed up. What I'm saying here is that references to heavenly does not necessarily mean heaven, the eternal kingdom. It can also refer to the air. That's why it says that he is um, in the heavenly realms. The signs of the Antichrist will act upon the sense of sight. So the main way that the, that, that the Antichrist will work and those of his prophets and false Christs, etc., all those things, will act on the eyes, charming and deceiving it. St. John the theologian says in the book of Revelation that the Antichrist will perform great signs so that even, ready for it, 
so that even he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth. See, St. Saint, St. John saying from heaven, not heaven, heaven, but heaven in the sky. The Antichrist will make fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. So if you go to India, to a lot of those Hindus, to the gurus and all that, you'll see that they make things appear in the air. Whole scenes. Scenes. If you read the book uh, Religion of the Future by Seraphim Rose, you'll see in there uh, examples of these gurus and all that that actually uh, make uh, whole visions appear to people. In the air. The Holy Scripture points to this phenomenon as the highest as of the signs of the Antichrist. In other words, this miracle that the Antichrist will do of making fire come down from that will be his ultimate. Like big deal. That will be his ultimate. But people will say, Wow, look at that. It's coming down from heaven. The same people who say, Oh, look at that light show when it's New Year's. The harbour bridge is all full of lights and other things that people say. Oh, look at that 3D. Or look at that uh, game. Or that, it's all visual. Don't get your children used to these visual things. Make them simple. Make them to enjoy, to look at green that's real and going out into the world. Proper Visual, not these things of the stimulation of the TV. And people, horrible people, who let their children to sit in front of TV where they're being conditioned to look at the t- little babies and they're there and they're, and they're just seeing all these lights, 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 and they're just getting used to it. When they grow up, those children, they're crazy. They're crazy. That's why even the, even the darkened psychiatrists who have limited knowledge, but they have some knowledge, they actually say... For the first couple of years, don't let your children watch TV because they're starting to see that there's a link between, and I believe that too, of schizophrenia with these things. Because it's, that's not reality and it's not the kids that they're hypnotised. It's cruel. Oh, no outrage for that. No outrage for that. But the woman that put the cat in the, um, in the thing, to me, my outrage for that is very minimal, if, if, if much not at all. Okay, the woman was silly. Well, we're going to go and kill her now because she put the cat in the bin. But the abuse, and there's no law saying that a person who allows their children to watch demonic shows, violent shows, sexual shows, even they might say on mature age, 15 and over, where's the law that if if a parent allows a 10-year-old to see that, that they're going to go and get in trouble? If they kick the cat, they'll get in trouble, but not if they let their child at 10 years old, 5 years old, 6 years old, watch Harry Potter and become disturbed. I was watching once on one of those current affair programs, they're saying, oh, the kids, that they, you know, they, they like watching it. And you saw the child was looking at, I don't know what it was looking at, maybe it was, somewhere. I don't know what it was looking at. And the child was like, you know, and the, and the reporter says, oh, do you like that? And she goes, like, she was disturbed. They can't, they can't fathom that stuff. The Holy Scripture points to this as the highest forms of the Antichrist, this visual. The sign it will be a magnificent and awesome spectacle. The Pharisees and others who demanded from the Lord a sign from heaven, in fact, demanded, this is why Christ 
became way side, way was upset, one can say, because they were demanding from Christ a sign from heaven which was similar to the signs that the Antichrist will do and his forerunners. Even now we have those type of people. This is the reason for Christ's reaction. The sign that the Pharisees were asking for, to see a sign from heaven, was similar to the signs that the Antichrist will do when he comes. And those, as I said, who are forerunners over the centuries. He expressed the deep concern and refused their demand and did not wish to remain any longer with them. And so he departed from them. He departed from them. Okay. I'm quite disappointed because... Hmm. Do you mind five more minutes or is it too much for your backs? Hmm? Hmm, just a bit more because I want to finish this to go on so I can do the other talk. But I will... Um, the, the evangelist, St. Theophilac writes, is amazed for they should have submitted to him because of his miracles, of his previous miracles. The miracles that Christ did were enough. And from those miracles, they should say, this is the Son of God, this is a prophet. But not to say, that's not from God what you're doing. Show us a sign from heaven. That's from God. It was then that they asked for a sign. They wanted to see a sign from heaven, for they thought that he performed the miracle which he did on the earth by the power of the devil, as the devil is the ruler of this world. In their warped minds, they thought that the devil is in the world, that therefore miracles that happen on earth are from him. St. Kirill says that others being afflicted with wickedness and without discernment out of envy asked to see a sign from heaven as if they were saying, yes, you expelled from a man a bitter and malicious demon, but this is not a great thing nor worthy of being admired. What you did is no proof of divine ability. This is what St. Kirill is saying. This is as if the Jews are saying, that doesn't mean you're from God. We said that already. We see nothing as yet equal to the miracles of old. Back to the old. Show us some deed of which there is no doubt of it being performed by power from above. Like Moses made the people pass over the Red Sea. The Jews are saying, that's a miracle. Having caused the sea that was between the two of become like a wall, etc., etc. He struck the rock with the rod and the fountains burst forth like a river. Likewise, also Joshua, his successor, made the sun and the moon to stand still. But you show no such deeds as these. You cast out a devil. This authority, the prince of the devils, even Beelzebub, grants to men. From this you receive the power to do such things, which causes amazement. Listen to it the way St. Kirill saying the, the mind of the Jews at that time. He goes... From this you receive power, it's like the demons, the Jews are saying to Christ, that you, your power comes from the devil, which causes amazement. Yes, people are amazed by what you do because they're ignorant, because they're stupid, because they're uneducated in the law. Such was, St. Kirill says, such was their stubborn fault-finding. And further on, Blessed Theophilus says, 
He calls them an evil generation because they were deceiving tempters and he calls them adulterous because they abandoned God and went over to the devil's side. In other words, they followed the demons. By wanting to see demonic miracles, it's, they are leaving God and that's what adultery. Like a man, if he goes with another woman, it's adultery. If a woman goes with another man, it's adultery. What God, what God has joined together must never be separated. So that's, that's a man and woman. Outside of that is adultery. The same as our relationship with God should be that we are united with God. If we go away from that, it's like we're committing adultery, spiritual adultery. St. Ignatius writes, they are called an adulterous generation because while recognising the miracles of the God-man, they pretend not to see them. They put the miracles down. They blaspheme the miracles and they ask for a miracle according to their sad state of mind and spirit. An expression which is an expression of an ignorant, perverted understanding of miracles. And the one about Jonah, we know that Christ also said, um, what is meant by that? For, oh yeah, because Christ said to them, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then the explanation for that says, although they ask for a sign from heaven, he gives them only the sign of Jonah, that for three days he will be in the belly of the great whale, meaning death, that Christ will be dead for three days like Jonah was in the whale for three days. And then Christ will rise just like Jonah came out of the whale after three days. He calls his resurrection a sign. When he says the sign of Jonah, that's what he means. The resurrection, a sign, or the crucifixion as well, but the resurrection. He calls his resurrection a sign as it is marvellous beyond belief. Now this is, for having descended into the heart of the earth, which is Hades, he arose on the third day. Yet you might say that that's a sign from heaven. For at his death, the sun was darkened and all creation was changed. It was for them that these signs... Christ didn't have to do those signs. He didn't have to make the sun go dark. He didn't have to make earthquakes, etc. That was for the Jews who wanted to see a sign. He gave them the sign. They said, we will believe if you show us a sign from heaven. And even though Christ departed from them, at the end he says, okay, I will give you that. That's what you want? I'll give it to you. There it is. Because it was enough for us, the resurrection of the dead, etc. People that believe, they don't need to see the sun darkened for three hours. They don't need to see the, um, what happened at, at, at that time. But here, St. Theophilact says that the signs which occurred were especially for them, because that's what they wanted. They wanted to see something in the sky, they saw it. The sun went, went out. It was then that the signs were given, that is, the signs took place for their sakes, yet they still did not believe. This is why he left them as incurable and departed. And St. Ignatius says, the Jews asked for a sign from heaven, well, they got it. The sun, seeing the Lord crucified, darkened at precisely 12 o'clock, and all encompassing darkness fell all around the world, which lasted for three hours, the veil of the temple was rent apart by itself from top to bottom. An earthquake occurred. Stones were shattered. Graves opened. Many saints resurrected and appeared in the holy city. At the resurrection, 
The Jews once asked for a sign from heaven. St. Ignatius says, well, they got it. Behold now a sign, an earthquake at the resurrection as well. A light-bearing angel came from heaven to the Lord's sepulchre as a witness to the resurrection. That's, a, that's from heaven, an angel from heaven. Striking with all the soldiers who were placed at the tomb by those who sought signs from heaven. So the Jews who sought signs from heaven put the soldiers there at the tomb of Christ. But then Christ rose as all these things happen. The soldiers told the resurrection of the Lord to the Jewish, to the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the highest court of the, of, of the Jews, the highest court of justice and, like we say, the, the ultimate authority. And they, what did they do? Having received their sign from heaven, they finally got their sign from heaven that they were yapping all the time. The Sanhedrin expressed disdain and hatred towards it as it had expressed towards all the miracles of the God-man. They then bribed the soldiers in order to cover God's miracle with the darkness of deceit. See how it all unraveled beautifully there? We see that they asked, they asked, they asked, they asked, they got it, they still didn't believe. And the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is an evil generation, it seeks after a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. I will tell you what the Ninevites are. And as also he says, the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here, and I'm going to read you the explanation, and we're finished. A quick one there. So St. Theophilus says on that, because we often hear this Nineveh, the men of Nineveh, and all these things, and we need to know what is that. God told um, Jonah, I want you to go to the, to the city of Nineveh, tell them to repent. They weren't, they weren't Jews. They didn't believe in the true God. They were pagans. And Jonah says, I don't want to go to the pagans. I don't want to go to them. And he got on the boat and he went an opposite way. When, they were, when he was on the boat, the boat started to, there was a storm, and the people on the boat said, there must be someone on here that's bad because this storm's happening. And they drew lots. They had straws and they drew lots and it fell onto him. And Jonah says, yes, it's me. Throw me in the water and the sea will remain calm. So they threw him in the water and they were saved. And then the whale came and swallowed Jonah and three days later, after being there, he went to the city of Nineveh there, to the shores, and vomited him out, which is what whales do when they've got something that's alien in them. And he went there and he preached and told them to repent, that in 40 days, if they don't repent, that, that God will destroy them. And they repented. So as the crowds increased, the Lord began to reprimand those who were ungrateful for some of them were seeking from him a sign from heaven. They were saying, the miracles he is working are from earth, and he works them through Beelzebub, the ruler of this world who has power on earth. But Jesus is not able to work signs from heaven because he is not the son of the heavenly father. We've already explained all that. Because of those who were saying such things, the Lord gives this rebuke and says, a sign shall be given to you which will show that I am the true son of the heavenly father. And what sign is this? The sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. 
Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, so too I will spend three days in the belly of the whale, the great beast, Hades, and then I will rise. But the men of Nineveh believed Jonah when he preached, after he came to life again, as it were, from the belly of the whale. But this generation will not believe me, even though I rise from the dead. Yes, Jonah came out of the whale after three days, which is, in a way, uh, somewhat miraculous, because I will read to you that some something in a minute. But Christ did something greater than that. The pagans believed Jonah, but the Jews who knew the law, who knew, who knew the Old Testament, did not believe in Christ. So he says, those people, the pagans, will condemn you on the last day. So... Even, even though I rose from the dead, you don't believe. Therefore, this generation will be condemned by the Ninevites because they did not imitate the Ninevites, although, behold, are greater than Jonah's here. That's what he's saying. I'm greater than He doesn't say, I am greater, because that will look like pride. And then the Jews are going to say, look, he's proud. And so he says, are greater than Jonah's here. They believed, now Christ, as if Christ is saying, they believed in my servant Jonah, without any signs except for the, the whale part. And what is more, they were barbarians. But you, you Jews, were nourished on the prophets and you have seen miracles and have not believed in me, the master. There is a vast difference between us both in rank and in what I preach. In other words, Christ said, there's a big difference between me and Jonah. I am the master. He is the servant. I preach the kingdom of heaven. He preached salvation only from the city's destruction. He didn't mention anything spiritual. He didn't tell them anything about salvation, about the life, anything. All he preached to them was, if you don't stop your sins, God's going to destroy you. That's it. My words are accompanied by miracles. Jonah did no miracles. So... The Ninevites believed him and repented. You, who seen miracles, have know the word of God, the, the Old Testament, don't change. St. Kirill says, Christ says that the Ninevites will appear for the condemnation of the Jews at the time of judgment, for they were rude and barbarous people, ignorant of him. They didn't know about the true God, who by nature and truth is God, and were without knowledge of of the glorious prophecies. They had no idea of the prophecies. In the Old Testament, it's full of all these prophecies pointing to Christ being the Messiah, which the Jews today also ignore, by the way. But even though this was their mental state, they repented. So even though they didn't know about God, they had no prophecies, they had no Old Testament, they repented. Christ says at the preaching of Jonah, that they repented just by, by Jonah's preaching. Therefore, the Ninevites were far better than the Israelites, and therefore the Israelites will be condemned by the Ninevites on the last day. Now, the Queen of the South, it says, what we said before, the Queen of the South came to listen to Solomon, and now one greater than he. Anyway, the Queen, says St. Theophilus, he says, comes from a great distance. Despite her tender womanhood, that she was a woman. I know the feminists, they can do everything anyway. She wasn't a feminist. She, she actually came all the way from, where was she from, Egypt? I'm not even sure. Where? Ethiopia. Um, 
Ethiopia. So she came all that distance, which is hard, not just an aeroplane. She came all that distance, and even being a woman that's weaker, the weaker sex, that she still did the journey so she can see what? What did she come to see or hear? She came to hear Solomon speak about nature, about trees and woods and four things. But though I come to you speaking of inexpressible things, things beyond words, things about the heavenly kingdom, etc. You have not accepted me. She was a pagan. She came all the way to listen to the wisdom of Solomon to speak about science or things like that and some wise things. St. Cyril says this woman, even though she was a barbarian, she wasn't a Jew, she, wasn't, she didn't believe in the true God, greatly desired to hear Solomon. She travelled the great distance to listen to his wisdom regarding the nature of things visible, not spiritual, and about animals and plants, etc. But you who are listening, I love this how he says it, but you, meaning the Jews, who are listening to wisdom itself, that God being wisdom, you're listening to not someone speak wisdom, but you're listening to someone who is wisdom, meaning Christ, you turn away from the word and pass by with indifference the wonderful nature of his teachings, that is God's teachings. God came to you speaking about things visible and heavenly and confirming what he said. He didn't just speak words, but he also proved that his words are true because he did deeds and miracles that pointed to him that he was the Messiah, that he was God. St. Kirill further says, which is the last two paragraphs, for even though they were witnesses of the wonderful deeds performed by Christ and the holy prophets and knew about them long before, they knew all about the Old Testament, like I told you before, nevertheless, they continued stubbornly and rebellious. They just didn't submit. And he says further, last paragraph, St. Kirill says, but he will not grant you another sign that he may not give holy things unto dogs nor cast pearls before swine. For how can they, who are malicious slanderers of the miracles, already done, already wrought, how can they, who slandered the miracles that they saw, deserve yet more miracles? And he says, no more. What they got is what they got. I'm happy. I actually finished it. it this took me quite a long time to put it together and I must say that I learned quite a lot myself things that I didn't really know and I remember a preacher in America when I heard him on a tape he said he said to the crowd thank you because because I, I have to do these talks for you it makes me study more so it's the same because of the people that are listening to the CDs or you people present it's kind of I actually see the the responsibility that these talks are heard by quite a few people and I just can't come and just do a little talk and you know and, and I, I have to study it well with God's help to make sure it's presented that people will understand it and I think at the end of the day when the summary is that why do we, we for example we see a miracle the priesthood one simple thing is the holy water the priest orthodox priest blesses the holy water it doesn't go off. You can keep it for years, centuries, doesn't matter. As you know, in Greece, in the old days, they used to get little bottles, fill it up with holy water, put it into the ground and build a house on top. They used to put it in the foundations. And after many, many centuries, 
years, 200, 300 years later, they um, open up these, these foundations and find these bottles, open them up, the water is fresh, and holy water. So we, wouldn't it be blasphemous for a person to say, oh, I want to see a miracle to see if the, whether the priest is from God or not? And that, that, that's what it's saying. It's saying that don't ask when you are already given. There's no harm in someone else who's never seen to say, I want to see something. Perhaps that's okay. But when they do see it and they reject, then, they, then we fall under the condemnation. And all references that I said here, we refer to ourselves. Some people say, oh, you know, you put down the Jews, etc., etc. The Jews lived in those times and they are that, but the Holy Fathers say that their spirit is similar to our spirit today. And nothing is worse than an Orthodox Christian to have the same mindset as they did in those days, especially today when we will read in next month that we have so many of the Holy Fathers and the Church writings which explain everything in so much detail. We have the mysteries of the Church. We have, the, we have Holy Communion. We have Confession. We have all these things that weren't available to those people. However, if we reject, we will be condemned more than the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and all those other people in those times. So let's not just look at them. Let's look at that. Now, quickly, questions? We're finished now. No. Uh, so in the gospel we read uh, some are samples about dreams when uh, Joseph saw in a dream the angel and he followed his advice. Mm -hmm. And there are some samples also for the monks and uh, kids and other people who saw in a dream uh, Mother of God to find this or that icon. Can you please uh, tell us how can we consider, because this is exactly about a dream. You told us not to believe in dreams. Firstly, some people who saw dreams who weren't very spiritually mature, but for some reason they were given a dream which was true, a lot of those people later on fell away from the church because of pride. Because how many people see dreams that come true? Hardly no one. Only a few. So when a person, or even spiritual people, one can say even spiritual people who saw a dream, later on the devil comes on and goes, you're special, you're special because you saw the dream. Even holy people. And that's why holy people never wanted to see dreams. However, God does make exceptions where he has made dreams to come for, for, for Joseph and other saints, etc., etc. Now, those people who are given those dreams go through what's called a big iskushanya, I think that's how you say it, a big temptation. Because whenever we see something which is extraordinary, it gives us the opportunity to become proud. These people had to struggle even more to protect themselves, number one. And number two, even though they were holy and even though they were full of grace, they still were in danger of falling away. However, they had the discernment to know what's from God and what's from the devil. We don't. So when we see a dream, because we're darkened, because a lot of us watch television, and because a lot of us lead worldly lives, a lot of us don't read much, a lot of us don't hardly pray, a lot of us don't repent properly, a lot of us don't commune correctly, a lot of us don't confess, etc., etc., etc. Our souls are completely a mess. And therefore, the demons 
are very tricky and they come along and they make out that that dream's from God and this interpretation is such and such and such and we believe it. And that is why, yes, some Holy Fathers did see dreams. They are very exceptional. There are many saints who never saw any dreams, right? They are exceptional. But I know from the readings of the Holy Fathers and the saints there that they didn't want it. They didn't want to see visions. They didn't want to see anything because they were scared of falling into deception. Some are true. Like I said before, St. Anthony wasn't a dream, but St. Anthony saw some people coming, and St. Anthony said, oh, I saw you, I saw you, I saw you as you were coming. And they go, oh, St. Anthony the Great, how did you know? How did you know we were coming? He goes, oh, I saw you before you came, St. Anthony said. And guess what he answered? He said, I saw you because the devil told me. Right? The devil told me that you were coming. Now, one might say, oh, what Saint is Anthony? does St. Anthony have communion with demons? St. Anthony was a saint, and the demons were allowed to tempt him. So the demons put into his mind about that. It wasn't from God. Sometimes it was from God. Sometimes it was from the, it's from the devil. The difference here is that St. Anthony knew that was from the devil. He felt it because of his spirituality, because of his pureness. He felt it was yucky. It was something was wrong with it, and he said... The devil told me. In other words, he, he rejected it. He didn't want to pay attention to it as being from God. He wasn't tricked. But for us, as soon as we say something, they go, dring, dring, hello. Oh, John, I was just thinking of you, right? And straight away, what do we think? I was just thinking of you. It must have been my guardian angel which told me, Right? I was, I was reading the life of St. Nectarius yesterday and I think it was St. Nectarius that came to me and said to me that you're going to ring. See, we are, we are inclined to pride. So, yes, some saw it, some saints saw it, and some saints, saints saw it and lost their souls because they fell into pride because of it. And that's why the saints say... Only an idiot follows dreams. Just like a person who's trying to f chase his shadow. Little kids can do it. Of course, I used to do it, but now I can't even do it. But anyway, let's just say, you're running, there's your shadow, and you're running to catch your shadow. Can you catch your shadow? No. And that's what St. John of the Ladder says, a great saint of the Orthodox says, a person who believes in dreams is like the idiot who tries to chase his shadow. Will he ever catch his shadow? No. It's the same as dreams. It's stupid, it's ridiculous to believe in them, it's dangerous, and it opens up the doors to demonic deception. Any other questions? Yes? Uh, I want to ask, you said people who live spiritual life. Can you elaborate, tell us, all right, so um, confession, go to church, what else? Spiritual, when I say spiritual life, I mean a life which is in an inner life, not an external life. A person can commune, can fast, can confess, and not necessarily be doing any spiritual life. We've done this in previous talks, especially talk number 27 about spiritual coldness, where I said that a person needs to cultivate uh, repentance. A spiritual life that is where, where Repentance is absent. Repentance comes from within. 
pain, true pain of, of, of in your soul for the sins, etc., then that spiritual life becomes the spiritual life of the Pharisees where it's external and demonic. True spiritual life is a person who has repentance and humility. If a person can't be told their faults, then spiritual life is lacking. If a person's struggling to accept his faults but sometimes lashes out but then asks for forgiveness, the person's struggling. If a person trusts themselves, that's not part of spiritual life. A person must be careful not to trust themselves, to be obedient to those around, husbands, wives, etc., to spiritual fathers, to the church's teachings, and especially to cultivate a contrite and humble heart, like it says in Psalm 50. A contrite and God, doesn't, God doesn't want these sacrifices a lot of times. What the main thing he wants is a person to have a contrite and humble heart. A contrite and humble heart God will not despise. In other words, a heart where a person has humility, a heart where a person has fear of God, a heart where a person has repentance, thinks about his sins, thinks about death, thinks about the next life, thinks that he deserves to go to hell, but only by God's mercy will he be saved, that person's leading a spiritual life. If a person doesn't have any feeling towards... I, I know people that have been in the church for years, and I say, do you ever think about hell? They go, no. Don't think about hell. So, well, what do you think? That you're going to be saved? He goes, I don't think of anything. So you see, it's just... But they confess, they commune, they fast, they read books. That's, that's all the thing. Um, St. Siluanos of Manatha says, keep your mind in hell and despair not. Mean, think about hell. Know that you deserve to go there because of all your deeds. But know one thing, that only we will be saved if God grants us his mercy. Only through his mercy, whatever we've done stinks. It's all defiled with pride. And only if he grants us forgiveness, mercy will be saved. If a person has that spirit, then they're saved. If a person dies with sins, but dies in a spirit where they're saying, um, like the thief, remember me in thy kingdom... With, and asking God for his mercy and forgiveness, then the prayers of the church can help to get that person out of Hades. Without that, without that spirit, then we don't know about what happens to the rest. That's it. Uh, thank you. Stand up, please. Um, Give us good